Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the stacks. This is Jay. And I'm someone who hates Carrie White so much. I'm Shannon. There's, there's a lot of people who hate Carrie White quite a bit. It just consumes their entire personality. Well, it's sort of a problem with those. Those are definitely the least fleshed out characters in the movie. You can feel that this comes from Stephen King's first novel, that this is the first Stephen King adaptation, both in that a lot of his core themes are here. (laughs) (laughs) But and that uh, a lot of the characters are not as fully fleshed out. Like one of his big things is his characters all kind of have some sort of interiority, even the villains there's. Uh, a lot to them, you know. It, it, you know, he's a novelist. He writes thousand-page novels where, you know, every character has a voice. This one, <laughs> the bullies are just bullies. They don't exist beyond that. They have no inner life. Well, no, that's not true. Sometimes they walk over to where the pigs are, oh, but they do it for bullying. It's for bullying, uh, and they're psychotic. Like they're really, really uh, crazy bullies by the end of it, but. Uh, and it, it just kind of doesn't come from anywhere. There's not a whole lot. I, well, I mean, she's part bad of it, at volleyball, man. You gotta she, dump shit on her. She's she's uh, annoying. She's religious. Uh, it's. I do think, to a certain degree, a lot of this is metaphor. Uh, like I, I mentioned it briefly. I do kind of have a vague theory about this being sort of about Nixon and sort of about the the toxic evangelical Republican party that sort of developed and out of Nixon and into the Reagan years, the hand coming out of the grave at the end feels like, uh Oh, Reagan, and uh, <laughs> the, the Reagan neocons. But uh, I, I don't have like a, a complete rundown of that. That's just sort of a working theory I have and not something I'm going to get too deep into in this, but I, I kind of feel like maybe that's why those two are just, pure fucking idiot fuckwits and just nothing else. They're just total idiots. <laughs> they are hilariously stupid. I mean, John Travolta, uh, introducing John Travolta. <laughs> introducing. This <laughs> uh, whole thing is he just smiles and does dumb shit. He is very dim. And, and like, he, he perfectly plays it. Like, it's oh. a good performance, but... It is also kind of the traditional John Travolta, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you see him on stage for one, or on the screen for one second, you're like, oh, wow, I know everything about this character now, and kind of maybe everything about the actor, too. Well, there's so little to know about him. He's just (laughs) sort of a blank. Uh, So this is, of course, Carrie, 1976, directed by Brian De Palma. Big breakthrough for De Palma, probably De Palma's most seen movie, I would have to say. Um, I don't know if I've seen, well, I mean, I've definitely seen one other one besides this, but. Well, uh, I, there's Untouchables and Scarface are both pretty huge oh, in the yeah. 80s. Uh, and like, he's got a lot of more well-respected movies as well, like Blowout and Body Double and Dress to Kill. Those are all pretty big as well those are all kind of on the same level as this but i do feel like untouchables scarface and this are like the really big ones the ones that make him a star director oh yeah i haven't even heard of the other ones uh 
other than the ones we've talked about here. Right. And this is the first Stephen King novel, which is kind of wild. And it's crazy to think that 1976 is the first time we have a Stephen King adaptation because there have been roughly 300 of them since then, you know? That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's probably higher than that because there's so many that are student films. Uh, Stephen oh, King yeah. likes to do this thing. It's his, I think he calls them his dollar babies. If someone <laughs> wants to make a student film of his that's like not a you know, big for-profit venture that's not like going to be a theatrical film, uh, they can buy the rights to do it for a dollar. He's like, yeah, cool. I, I like people making movies of my stuff. That's fun. Gotta, I got to appreciate that. Yeah, I think Stephen King is a pretty cool guy. <laughs> he seems like it. He uh, likes to take Elon Musk to task as as much as anyone can. Yeah, he's fun. Uh, and, I, you know, his politics really do shine through in a lot of his stuff. He he <laughs> is often talking about it. Uh, the, the evangelical thing is such a huge theme in his work. It's come up again and again. Everything that we talked to with him or everything we've talked about relating to king has involved it pretty much yeah i'm actually trying to think we how many stephen king adaptations have we covered probably done a few six seven maybe i don't know if it's that many we did firestarter we did dead zone uh, we did the shining i'm not sure if there were any others Those, those are the only ones i can think of off the top of my head but, I mean, you know, we've seen so many of them. Everyone's seen many of them. I've oh, watched sure. a whole lot of them. I've seen uh, it two different times. or Two different versions. It, yeah. Did you see... Oh, yeah, you saw Chapter 2 as well. That's We, we saw that together, right? In yeah, the we saw that. Yeah. yeah. Was, <laughs> it was a right. movie. It's, it's got Angel of the Morning in it. Uh <laughs> So De Palma, this is a De Palma episode. We're doing uh, both Carrie and our second part. We'll be talking about Snake Eyes. Uh, and th- this, uh, just in terms of his influences, he really wears them on his sleeve. Hitchcock is the really big one that's often cited. But I'd say here there's a bit more of his Brecht and Godard influence. Where, And, and I guess all three of them, it's true. It's it's a thing about reflecting back on the audience, making the audience like super extra complicit in everything. Every <laughs> like film is voyeurism and the audience is a voyeur and they're always watching and you're like watching people watching people be watched, right? <laughs> <laughs> Movies that are just thoroughly about the act of watching, and it's here in all of the split screen stuff, and it's a huge theme in Snake Eyes, of course. Oh, yeah, it's basically the point of Snake Eyes. You're in Snake Eyes, you're basically trying to solve the mystery while trying not to get distracted by Nick Cage, and it's hard to do. Right. So I, w- one of the big things in terms of just him sort of in conversation with the audience, he's playing with audience expectations in the way that Hitch does, but he's doing it in more of a jagged way, sort of like Godard, where he's sort of interrogating the audience intentions and like the, the whole opening thing after the volleyball, you know, we, we have just the, the volleyball where Carrie's just bad at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, she does the, the, the thing where she, you just slap it to the side and I've, I've done it. It's, it's, it's how I play volleyball. This is why I don't play volleyball. Yeah. She, she totally blows it and uh, you know, it goes by. It's obvious. No one likes her. Everybody tromps by it. Someone said, you eat shit. 
And it goes into the shower scene. The girls, the you know, yeah. high school girls shower locker room scene, which it starts out very nostalgic. It's got that soft Pinot Donaggio theme, just locker room shenanigans. And just the slow tracking shot through the steam. And it sort of starts titillating to get the audience off guard to, like, especially for teen boys who might be watching it. Mm. It is, it's it's like, it's going to get you just a little titillating and it's going to twist the knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the, yes. It's, it's like showing you, like, okay, you are entering into a private female space. So, yeah, and um, it, yeah, it, and I it, guess one of the downsides to going into a private female space is you don't always see what you want to see because it's not for you. Well, you're you're going to encounter private female things, mm-hmm. and that that that's sort of the it's it's a be careful what you wish for sort of thing. But also just the Brian De Palma movie thing. The camera can go anywhere, <laughs> and yeah. It will often go where you want it to, and then it might make you regret going where you wanted it to. It, it's always going to uh, – the, the the camera is in is, is antagonistic to the audience at times. <laughs> uh, especially in Snake Eyes. It's like, no, no, look back over there, camera. I wanted to see what they're doing. Uh, not this time. Yeah. It's like uh, the, the, the camera is uh, – it, it's, it's intentionally sort of reflecting different – like uh, it, it's it's playing with the audience. Uh, it, it is always conscious of what the audience wants to see and what is going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in terms of the Hitchcockiness of it all, it's Bates High School. Norman Bates from <laughs> Psycho. It's the Bates uh, packing plant later. Yeah, I was I was looking for Hitchcocky Hitchcocky influence in Carrie after watching Snake Eyes. I didn't mm. find it as much, or at least not as obvious. It's definitely a lot more pronounced in Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes is just like a Hitchcock uh, blockbuster, a 90s version of a Hitchcock blockbuster. It's got a lot of rope and it's got a lot of the man who uh, knew too much. But this one, there's there's flavors of it in terms of just the the watching the camera. Uh, it, It does a lot of the rear window stuff. And I'm glad we had watched rear window prior to this because... Uh, the split screen is used in a very similar way, mm-hmm. but he does. Uh, like I said, there's more of a Brecht to Godard thing. It's it's more jagged because uh, you know Hitchcock didn't really do horror per se. No, that's Most, a, that's a misconception that I had always had about him. That I thought he was a horror director for some reason, and eh, not not from what I've seen really. Well, he's described as the master of horror, and he did a few important horror works like psycho and the birds and frenzy this does take quite a bit from frenzy but that's like his final film it's him doing kind of a proto slasher which is fascinating no no it's not his final film the last one's family plot which i kind of love but most people hate (laughs) (laughs) so yeah uh, we, we we track through all of the locker room to carrie who's showering and it's like a commercial at first Yeah. (laughs) Don't you hate when you're in the shower and then it happens. You're feeling 
not so fresh. Yeah, just <laughs> the the soap, the flesh, yeah. and the the nostalgic soft Pinot Dinaggio theme. Pinot Dinaggio works with uh, De Palma a lot. Really interesting uh, Italian uh, composer. And it brings kind of a Euro sensibility to it. Like you would not get the goofy music sequences if it were an American composer, I feel. That's true. I don't think you would. <laughs> there, there's kind of a, a, a different playing with tone that you get from Italian composers. It's like those, uh, like like the Plisiotaskis or stuff like uh, Stelvio Cipriani, who I think did highway racer and i think i talked about who did tentacoli which has just this hilarious breezy score for killer octopus movie (laughs) it's fun it is fun though (laughs) and pino donaggio does like really lush scores so it's got that really soft pillow of sound under things and then once in a while you'll do like a little uh sonic reference to psycho it it references the music to psycho quite a bit oh right because psycho was the originator of the that that sound right that's yeah that's in here oh it's used quite a bit there's a fair (laughs) amount of psycho references and homages but like you haven't seen that so it's a little harder to pick out Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah she is uh soaping up she's in the shower after the uh volleyball and you do see that it's like a rare moment for her of peace. Yeah, that's something I always I, I kind of thought was interesting. Is like she's the only one in the shower, which I thought was kind of weird. But it's like, well, I guess none of them want to shower with. They probably call her the stinky girl on top of everything else. I think they they definitely don't like her. It could entirely yeah. be a thing where she has gone to the shower to just. Uh, be away from them as well because i i don't it, it does not seem that she is that much of a social pariah there is just a few people who hate her there's like really one very outspoken bully yeah and it's like that was a couple she doesn't, even, she doesn't even have to hate her she's the popular girl she could just live a whole life that doesn't have bullying yeah, it's it's sort of just a, she's pathological, and who knows what's going on with her? Maybe there's something going on with her at home. I, I I have not read this one Stephen King novel. Somehow, this being the very first one, it seems like I should have, considering I've read basically all of them up to around 2000 ish. But somehow this one's escaped me, so I can't uh, give the usual background that I might for Stephen King novels. <laughs> I like to imagine that. Her home life is her just going home and be like, I hate Carrie White so much. Now, now, honey, what has this Carrie White done to you? She was bad at volleyball and then she had a period and didn't know what it was. Well, that's the weird thing. It's it's totally just she is a bully and she doesn't really even try to justify her bullying. No, not at all. She's just classic Stephen King bully who just hates this one person because she's the main character. And there, it's it's not as developed as some of the later bullies, let's say. Usually in, or, or maybe it is in the actual book. Here, we just don't have the context for it. I can't say. But, uh, you know, in, in It, those bullies tend to have, like, really fucked up, broken homes that oh. we sort of learn about through the course yeah. of the movie. Whereas this, she just seems like a real bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just, that just is her whole thing. She's just yeah. a bitch. 
and also just you know the the ultimate bullying act is uh, a mirror image of the opening because uh, you know she's soaping up in the shower and she gets her first period the blood comes down Mm-hmm. Uh, physically we like that. well yeah it, it, it slowly <laughs> tracks down her body and again it seems like it's supposed to be titillating and it goes down to the thighs and then you see blood start to come down which you know uh mirrors the ending you know the the problem oh yeah uh, right. that's, this is probably where they got the where the bully got the idea yeah so she freaks out because it's her first period and she literally knows nothing about it. Her super evangelical mother has told her nothing about this, has not prepared her for it. So she freaks out. She thinks time, she's dying. Yeah. I, and I guess in this time, in this area of the world or whatever, schools didn't tell you either. Although even in my day, you had to get permission from the parents to attend the classes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, probably which, uh, was a, like, I, I would say probably at this time it just was not a part of a curriculum. I think maybe in the 80s it started to be. I don't know how common it was to have to have uh, have to sign a form, but I, I, I vaguely recall that being the case when I did. But again, I was learning in freaking grade five or six. You know, I was. Yeah, I was a rat there. You know, I, I don't know. It's weird. So. You know, everybody laughs at her. They throw tampons. They say, plug it up. Uh, and she's just freaking out. She she has no idea what's happening. Yeah, and they're just, you know, they're doing the bully thing where they all, like, form a human barrier around her to point and laugh and throw shit at her. And the teacher, the gym teacher comes in to break it up. And she's just, like, she's so freaked out she has to slap her to make her calm down, which is... <laughs> Kind of just a movie thing, I feel. Yeah, like, I've never that, seen that happen in life. <laughs> I've seen it happen, but I haven't seen it work. Yeah, no, it's it's a kind of absurd. I think people get it from movies, but you don't actually yeah. do that. No. But this is, it's the X-Men thing. The period is what brings upon her psychic powers or her, her telekinesis, because it's the very first manifestation of that, because she tries to get her to stand up like uh, the, the teacher, you know, tries to pull her up and Carrie screams at her getting in her space and the light explodes above her. Yeah. Now, I got a theory that some of the people, uh, a couple of them, maybe the teacher and maybe the uh, the one not so mean girl might Sue. know they might know or at least have an idea about her powers. Because they, they react to it. They seem more freaked out than if just the light exploded normally. I don't think they have any suspicion of the powers. I think it's just, whoa, weird. Because <laughs> okay. it never comes up again, and you'd think it would. Uh, That's true. They both constantly talk to her. They're the only people who are on her side in the movie. So you'd think some sort of mention of it would come up, but it never does. Good point. So, I mean, not they, even a... Put it yeah. in the cornfield, Carrie White. Yeah, they, they don't really know what's going on. It's just like, whoa, that's fucking crazy. And it, it's just like, you know, she takes her to... She oh, takes the her, principal. Takes her to the principal's office, and it's uh, this long shot where, you know, she, she the, the teacher's talking to the principal about how, you know, she just... I guess her mother never told her, because we know... We know uh, fucking Mrs. White, she's just a crazy, absolutely nuts religious lady. I mean, what can we do? 
<laughs> but there's even like this bit where the teacher says to the principal, it's like, now let's not go too hard on the girls. I mean, she is so bullyable, though. Mm-hmm. She gets it. Uh, she's like, I like I'm annoyed. Like, I admit it. It's like I couldn't believe that she could be so dumb and naive. She's, uh, you know, she's 16 or she's 15. I don't know. I think 16 is supposed to be the age. Like, it's absurd that uh, she n- would react so badly to this. But, of course, she has no education whatsoever. And it's sort of not her fault. This is where I get to thinking that it has something to do with the larger politics of America in the 70s. Okay. Where it's uh, this sort of frustration with the left who want to be welcoming but can't deal with just the the people coming out of a religious background who just have no concept of the world. You still okay. see this shit today. Oh, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> there's a, there's a whole there's a whole subreddit for people who don't know this shit and have to ask about it. Right, lots of this stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really great in this sequence is this is our first really cool split diopter shot. We got a lot of these in the movie mm-hmm. where she's sitting outside the principal's office and it's her face in one side of it. And just the other side is all always populated by all of these people going by and it's her seeing them seeing her, you know, they're all going by, they're seeing her, they're laughing at her, they're passing senior prom signs, which is an important detail. Oh, very important. And we got it's it's sort of switching between them and switching between the secretary who's in the left of the screen and her face in extreme close up on the right of the screen. And we've got the secretary seeing her being seen and just hating how seen she is like this is her. Suddenly she's kind of a minor celebrity in the school. Everybody knows what just happened to her and everybody's looking at her and she's hating it so much. Yeah, because she still doesn't actually know what just happened to her. Right. She's still kind of confused. I think yeah. the gym teacher has tried to explain it to her already uh, and has sort of told her what the deal is. Yeah. But she just now she just is kind of sitting there and having to uh, live in the celebrity of the moment. Mm-hmm. And just the it, it, it is that thing of just people being watched and people watching we're we're just really heavy on that and we're looking at all of these people watching people and it's you know reflecting on the audience that we are watching as well mm-hmm. so uh the the principal notably visibly uncomfortable with just the little traces of blood on the teacher's shorts yeah yeah just like does not want to even acknowledge that this is happening Oh, it's about periods. Okay, well, I want to shut down the conversation right now. Yeah, he's just very uncomfortable, and he obviously has... He is sort of uh, bowled over that she doesn't know anything about it either, but it's definitely a thing where it's like, well, I mean, it's not my job. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, it's like, I can't believe somebody doesn't teach her to, but I'm not that somebody. Also, I thought it was really notable, he's smoking smoking in the principal's office himself oh yeah no when you're different uh, era <laughs> yeah different time <laughs> so the the principal send in cassie wright 
Oh, uh, yeah. Cassie right. White. Yeah, Cassie Wright. No, it's yeah. Cassie Wright. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the the gym teacher, like, it's Carrie White. But like, too quietly, and he says, hey, come in, Cassie. And the, the gym teacher again, Carrie. <laughs> He's just not getting it. He's not listening. No, no, I'm not going to learn your name. Uh, it's not important. And there's... This interesting shot where, you know, she comes in, he's smoking, and the camera travels from Carrie's face slowly all the way down to the smoking cigarette in the ashtray. And when it's it's him saying Cassie a third time, and <clears throat> the the cigarette in the ashtray shakes as she says, it's Carrie. <laughs> yeah. Like... Okay, Carrie, I'm annoyed now. <laughs> One thing I like about De Palma that I've noticed from the two films that I've saw, seen is he likes to set up the pieces well in advance to where, to where they're going to be used, and he likes to draw your attention to them beforehand. It's a very Hitchcock thing. It's the mm-hmm. bomb in the briefcase that you know the audience knows about that the people uh, over the table don't know about, right? Yeah, or, or when... Uh, when the maid is cleaning up and she's about exactly. to open the chest. Yeah. So it's he's doing this here with the ashtray where she's just staring at the ashtray because she saw it shake because she was annoyed when she was saying the thing about her name. And she's just staring at the ashtray and it keeps shaking and she's getting more stressed out about it. <laughs> and she's like she still doesn't understand why any of this is happening she's sort of maybe got the period thing down but it's like or th- this other stuff doesn't seem like a thing that normally happens i uh i i haven't seen that happening with anyone else yeah yeah it's like wait is this, this normal my mom's right and i am a horrible bitch person yeah and so while she's talking it just keeps shaking and He's just droning on and on, and he finally says Cassie again, and she snaps, it's Carrie, and the, <laughs> the ashtray jumps, spins in the air, explodes <laughs> on the floor, and she just runs out of the office. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. And I can just imagine the principal like, well, glad that's over. It's weird, because, you know, they, I, I would have to assume they thought she hid it or something. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. She doesn't get in trouble for it because, you know, she's already had a rough day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then the third manifestation of her power, she's walking home and there's this little boy on a bike who's like riding circles around her calling crazy Carrie, crazy Carrie. Man, her word of exploits even reached the middle schools. That's got to suck. That's a bummer. I mean, he probably lives on her street. Yeah, but. Either way, still, you're just not not even walking home. You're safe. I, I remember that. I used oh, to get. yeah. It's a fucking bummer. <laughs> yeah, I, I had these these bullies from like the school. I, I was bullied by people in the school below me, the elementary school when I was walking home. They threw snowballs at me. That's a drag. Yeah, it wasn't fun. But of course, she can now deal with it. And she still doesn't really know how she feels about it. Or I don't think she's really intentionally controlling it at this point but uh she knocks him off the bike with her mind uh, as after he says it just immediately he he does a dive which is pretty funny satisfying and, mm-hmm. and i think this is the first time it makes the uh, yeah. scare chord yeah 
the 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 kid on the bike is De Palma's son, by the way. It's oh, okay. Cameron De Palma. Cool. So, meanwhile, Piper Laurie from Twin Peaks, great Piper Laurie. <laughs> uh, she's off proselytizing in her cloak. Yeah. Oh man, and <laughs> just this whole thing about like the parent of it's Sue's parents that she goes to see and Mrs. Snell. I'm just imagining like the parent being like, "So are you here to talk to us about what my daughter did to your daughter?" <laughs> Not even a little bit. Well, she doesn't know about that yet. Uh, Neither yeah, of true, them. But... She, I, I like Mrs. Snell. She's day drinking. She's watching some soaps. She's just like, got got some wine, got the soaps on. I'm like, come on, lady. I don't have time for this. Yes, but have you heard the good word or whatever it is? Well, yeah, like she, uh, Margaret White, uh, Carrie's mom, she shows up at the door and it's like, oh, hey. And she just like very obviously does not want to invite her in. But <laughs> it's sort of required by propriety. Yeah, yeah. Just talking to her for this through the screen door for as long as she can before realizing she's not going to go away. Yeah, it's like, why don't you come in, Mrs. White? And of course, Mrs. White is trying to sell her a Bible, but specifically a teen Bible for Sue. <laughs> <laughs> I I really appreciate Mrs. Snell's like, I don't think she'd be very interested. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like uh, I can't remember. It's it's a Simpsons thing. It's like I don't think my kids would be that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mrs. Snell ultimately she just can't, it's like here a donation for the church of ten dollars. It's basically like here's ten dollars. Please go away. <laughs> and Mrs. Weiss just like oh oh I see how it is. She knows what it means. She yeah. knows that it is here's ten dollars. Please leave me alone. I don't 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 have any interest in any of this music like, oh i pray you find jesus <laughs> like oh man i wouldn't have invited her in myself <laughs> i don't care about propriety good lord i would have pretended i wasn't home yeah well i think she can't because there's a screen door and she can just see directly into the house in the living room i would have kept the the main door closed so you can't see through the screen door but a different time i guess yeah also yeah, hot so Margaret White, she goes home, and it's notably next door to just this empty lot, and it's a white house. The white creepy house. house. It's drab. It's small. It's mm. got a picket fence, though. You know, classic white picket fence. It's got sort of just a classic '50s suburban house feel to it. Like it, it's sort of the house that uh, it, it's like a Leave It to Beavers sort of house. It's just you know we're 20 years past that. So it's kind of drab. It's sort of run down. It looks dirty. Oh, yeah. And inside there's fucking religious iconography on every surface. Just everywhere. Nothing else. I was I was mentioning she'd be good friends with uh, Ed Gein or Ezra Cobb's mom. Oh, they'd get along great. I would suspect that she's probably heavily based on her. Like I, I think I would, it's quite possible. Yeah, I, I got to say that it seems probable to me uh, you know, yeah. as, as one of the like the key figures in true crime up to that point in time it just seems like an obvious source oh yeah and, and she has the whole um, sex is evil i'm gonna scream oh, at yeah. you about it for hours speech because she comes home and she gets this phone call 
and Carrie's already home, and she's listening from the top of the stairs. Mm-hmm. And one thing I wonder about, because the mom says, I know you're listening. Come on downstairs. I wonder if she has a bit of latent psychic ability herself. It could be that, or it could be pathological mistrust of her daughter, where she would say that every time, whether the daughter was listening or not. I think most of the time the daughter just is home and would be listening because just what else is there for t- for her to do? She has no real existence beyond being a part of the church under her mother. She she doesn't do anything. She has no apparent hobbies. She's not allowed to. Well, and also if you're in abu- in an abusive household, you always want to be listening to the abuser to make sure, you know, uh to get a gauge on their mood, to make sure yeah. you're safe. Yeah, exactly. You listen. Yeah. So she comes down, says, you're a woman now. And Carrie very rightly is like, why didn't you tell me, Mama? Oh, because it's evil. No, not because it's evil. She just slaps her with the Bible. (laughs) Literal Bible thumping. Yeah, she just hits her with the Bible and is like, well, I I didn't need to tell you. And she throws open her teen Bible. Bible! She opens up the teen Bible to the sins of woman chapter. (laughs) Uh, Which, like, again, you know, Sue's mom going, I don't think she'd be very interested. Yeah. (laughs) She starts just reading aloud from sins of woman. The raven was called sin. (laughs) And, you know, she has to repeat every phrase back to mom. This is what they do. The the, uh, call and response bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it's like, Mom, I'm literally trying to have an actual discussion with you. The raven was called sin, say it! Exactly. No, no th- this we're trying is... to be adults here. Right, that's that's evangelical Protestantism. It's just, no, I shout the words at you and then you shout them back. Nothing else. Drown you out. <laughs> and she's, she believes, and I guess it's why she didn't tell her, that she wouldn't have gotten the curse of blood if she were without sin. Yeah, that tracks. It's because of her lustful thoughts, that's why. Mom's like, like, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't have any lustful thoughts. I was thinking about how much the volleyball in the gym sucks at school. I hate it. I was thinking about that. And she locks her screaming in the closet. The uh, the zombie Jesus religious crazy closet. Yeah, she's got like a little shrine in there. Very weird Jesus. It's a Jesus just, you know, full of arrows, weirdly realistic eyes. That's just the, the whites of the eyes glow a little bit too much. Yeah. And um, he's not doing the Jesus pose. He's doing a weird kind of pose and. Jesus didn't have a lot of arrows in him, if I remember. I think it was just the spear. Yeah, it's, it's a little different. I, I think it's uh, usually St. Christopher who has the arrows. Let me oh, look okay. this up. Uh, n- no. St. Sebastian. St. Sebastian is the one with the arrows. So it's weird. I think this Jesus is sort of a combination between St. Sebastian and Jesus, which is very interesting because St. Sebastian is uh, usually associated with uh, athletes and 
uh, he he's like su- supposed to be like a beautiful man. So oh, okay. Saint Sebastian, uh, it kind of has uh, a popularity with uh, queer people. Typically, it kind of it has an association there. Uh, was believed to be a protector against plague. <laughs> All right. But yeah, it, it is weird that the the arrows thing that doesn't really track with me for Jesus, and that is sort of strange. But yeah, just that you know she's locking her in a closet, that she's in the closet, and that it's about lustful thoughts. There's uh, something going on with the 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 concept there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not that I necessarily get any impression that Carrie is supposed to be a queer character, just that it's it's more just generally sexuality altogether. Yeah, just keep all your closet. sexuality closeted. Yeah. Just don't have any of it. Now, as to Margaret White, I don't know uh, about her in terms of sexuality. Maybe asexual. Although she does admit she really liked sex the one time. The one time she was weak and allowed it to happen, and the result was you and your evil because you're born of my sin. That's why all this shit. It's it's so weird. So in the transition shot from the closet to the outside, there's this dramatic music sting. And I really like the the fade in, like the crossfade, because it's like Christ looming over the White House. Oh, Ooh, I never noticed that. But yeah, it's just because we get a close up on him, uh, the you know, the, the the eerie Christ with the eyes. Uh, and then in the crossfade, it goes to the exterior of the house. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, he's, you know, it's it's a very literal metaphor of Christ yeah. looming over this house and the 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 people within it. It's the or, White House, by the way, it is a White House. Oh they my are fuck. the whites. It's Carrie White. <laughs> and it's and it's not quite the Jesus we know, but is it's a perverted, a pervert. Oh, my gosh. The image of Jesus has been perverted a little bit. Yeah. To no, be been, like been a combination to fit a certain flavor of martyrdom. Oh shit! <laughs> and, you know, it's it's it is there. Yeah. So then there's the, another really great split diopter shot where Carrie leaves the closet in the background, uh, on, in like the far left of the screen, while Mom is operating the sewing room or the 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 sewing machine in like the the very close up far right. And it's another thing about being seen with all of these split diopter shots. There's always like an, an element of someone wanting to be unseen and someone seeing them. Because mm-hmm. like it, she comes out of the, the closet and she's framed through a sort of window in the kitchen wall. Which yeah. is, you know, a service window or something. And sure. she has to say, thank you, mom. The, the, you know, it's part of the the formality of this ritual. It's like, you can go to bed now. I'm like, great. Awesome. So her home life is uh, it's great. It rules. Awesome. Just perfect. You know, uh, no notes. <laughs> no, no. In the close-up on the mom, one of the things I notice is we can see an embroidered heart wrapped in thorns on her breast, on her left breast, like over her heart. Oh. I didn't notice that. 
Yeah, I mean, I would have to, like, it, it is a Christian image, the heart wrapped in thorns, but it's specifically over her breast that she has embroidered on her shirt that just, I mean, it speaks a lot to uh, the amount of love she is able to hold. <laughs> yeah. So Carrie, you know, she goes up to her room, she cries looking in the mirror, and there's, like, in as she's looking in the mirror, this is, again, just a, the rear window-esque shooting where... Christ is in a portrait looming over her shoulder while she's crying in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's it's with that that the, her powers manifest again, that the mirror starts to warp and distort. And uh, downstairs, mom is singing the power in the blood. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Like, just, it never fucking stops. Mm. But th- this is the power in the blood. You know, she's got real power in the blood. She has the shining. Yeah, well, it's sort of different. Yes. Shining-esque. They're, they're all kind of on a timeline, I guess. And this would be the same universe, because mm-hmm. all of Stephen King's books are interconnected. But then, it's a weird thing, the mirror explodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Mom rushes up and tries to get in, and she's, like, trying the knob and screaming, Open the door! But Carrie, on the other side of the room, without moving, says, it's open, Mama, and then it is. Like, she was able to keep the door closed with her mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there she is, just praying on her bed like a good little girl. Yeah, and the window's, or not the window, the mirror is cracked, but only cracked. It's, it's yeah. sort of back together, which is it interesting. got better. But it's still cracked, and Jesus is directly in the center of it. Hmm. <laughs> it's symbolic. With like a crack through Jesus. Oh yeah. So next day in English class, just the coolest guy with the poodliest hair. <laughs> oh, what is it? Tommy Ross or something like that, was it? I believe it is Tommy Ross, uh played by William Cat. I think he was uh famously uh Earth's what what's the uh, greatest American hero. The T V show. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm it's, not it's, familiar with it. Uh, it's it's this show about a guy who gets a superhero costume that is able to do all sorts of powerful things, and he has just this huge array of superpowers, but he lost the instruction manual. <laughs> kind of fun. Yeah. I can see show. this guy. You know, I like this guy. This guy I didn't like at first because I thought I thought he was with the bullies. Uh, yeah, no, he he's really he's really a good guy. Away. Yeah, he's a sweetheart, and it, it it's kind of hard on him. <laughs> yeah, he's doesn't go well. Yeah, Tommy Ross, a, prom king. Mm-hmm. He's a little dumb, a, a little, but you know, harmless. I don't know. I don't think he's supposed to be dumb. I think he's supposed to both be bright and an athlete. Like he's a real shining star. He's the head quarterback, and you know, he's writing this fairly complex and well thought out poetry. Well, he we find out he didn't write it, and the teacher hints at is like, I never expected anything like this from you. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's it's being read aloud, and we see everyone seeing him. Like again, we're we're getting some split diopter shot, and we're looking at everyone. It's everyone seeing him, but he's glorying in it. He's someone who wants to be seen and is seen the way he wants to be. Mm-hmm. He's just sitting there being seen and. Grinning like, yeah, I rule. He's Tommy Ross prom king. He's all American, because he's uh, the the teacher mentions that he's both a football and a baseball star. 
oh shit, so he's like high school royalty. He completely is. Like he's automatic prom king. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> the god. Yeah. I am the god. So just the 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 split diopter shot where he's in extreme close up and the teacher's like, "All right, class, well, criticisms." And it's he, he's got sort of an interesting like he's waiting for a criticism, but he also doesn't really expect any real criticism cuz he's the greatest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Carrie is sort of just unseen and unknown to him, but she's like way in the back row and we see her considering for a long beat. Yeah, she's like kind of hidden behind his hair. The camera has to like move a little bit to the side just so that we can see her. Like I said, a real cloud of poodle hair that this guy's got. <laughs> a very 70s too. Oh, Late yes. 70s specifically. But she finally says, it's beautiful. And the whole class laughs at her, of course, and the teacher even starts to make fun. And Oh, it's beautiful, is it? It's beautiful, huh? I, I like that we keep in the extreme close-up on Tommy and we see his smile disappear. He doesn't like it. He's he is bothered by them making especially by the teacher making fun of her. Yeah, yeah. Because they're it, it's a like the split diopter makes them sort of the two two main characters here and they're separate but aligned because both of them are extremely embarrassed by being the focus of this all of a sudden like he was really liking being the center of attention until it turned into meanness towards someone else yeah and he finally just says you suck <laughs> and the, the the teacher's like what did you say it's like oh, <laughs> I, I said oh shucks <laughs> I don't know, I would have still told the teacher he sucked, but... Yeah, that teacher does suck. I mean, he gets it hard at the end, too. (laughs) Yeah. So then we get the gym teacher doing roll call with all of the other girls. Here's where I think that there's something going on with the gym teacher behind the scenes that we don't see at all. Gym teacher, she's she's got problems. She's definitely got issues. She's got anger problems. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I would note that while that while they're uh, that while she's doing the ro- roll call, a janitor's cleaning off anti-carry graffiti. It's basically a drawing of her face and uh, saying "I eat shit," very similar to the "You eat shit" that uh, Chris said in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Who is you know she's the main villain. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely. I'm not saying that it was Chris who put the graffiti up, but it was Chris who put the graffiti it was, up, or maybe it was her like, boyfriend. I would say I don't think it's Billy. No, actually, uh, no, it wouldn't be Billy because... He doesn't go to the school. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I think he's older. I think he's a graduate. I think he's graduated or dropped out. Yeah, one or the other. His buddy definitely doesn't go to the school. No. And the the whole class is in trouble, especially Chris, because she's yeah. the meanest girl. And the teacher, she says... Her plan was to say that none of them would be allowed to attend prom. We're going to refuse your prom tickets. But the principal talked me down to one week detention with me, 50 minutes of calisthenics. Like, that's hey, Chris, Well, yeah, it does. But Chris is it's just deserved. Oh, yeah. Uh, she is just livid at the fact that she has to suffer a consequence. Oh, she can't take it. She refuses outright. 
but I I will not do the detention. Yeah, and the, the teacher's like, well, fine, then it's my rule, three days suspension, and you don't get to go to prom. And at first, you know, Chris tries to drum up some support, some support among the other students, and I'm like, come on, just shut up already. Yeah, it's basically a whole, don't make this worse for us than it already is. Completely. And, like, I've been in these sorts of situations where it's like, just shut up. You're, you're making it a problem for everyone else. Yeah, yeah, when all 30 got, of our classes in a detention and the one guy's like, yeah. no, teacher, you suck. Exactly. And, when you get, like, the full class detention, it's like, man, I was just here doing my fucking homework. Get out of my face. Mm-hmm. I, I like this is the first goofy music section. I don't know how it actually goes, but it's goofy. It's kind of like there's sort of like an, an organ sound. Like, yeah, it's goofy. Like it's it's silly music. Yeah, because these girls have to do their exercises and they're not good at it. It's just a lot. I remember in high school having to do a whole bunch of calisthenics and it sucks. It's like yeah. running laps around the fucking school field. It's just it's a pain in the ass. I get it. I get oh, yeah, not wanting sure. to do it. I never wanted to do it. <laughs> and uh, Chris ultimately quits. She's she uh, goes up. She runs up to the teacher and says, uh, "Stick it up your ass." Or she she tries to, but she gets slapped in the face. <laughs> <laughs> she can't get away with this. <laughs> It's just like everyone else, like, shut up, yeah, please. No one, no one else is on her side. It was like, I, I think it's Sue who finally says, just shut up, Chris. Yeah. It, it's either Sue or PJ Soul's character. I think it's Sue. I think it is Sue. And meanwhile, Carrie is researching miracles in her library in the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> oh, man. I... I... I learned how to use the Dewey Decimal System, and I do not remember. Oh, I I remember pretty well. I don't, I haven't been to my library in a long time. But I mean, you know, I I, I went to university, so I had to use it quite a bit for a few years. Mm-hmm. So she finds the secret science behind miracles, where she learns about telekinesis. It's like, oh yeah, this kind of seems to be what I'm running into. I like that it's it's great that her her worldview it it makes her look at miracles first. Yeah. Well, actually yeah, that that's about the only frame of reference she would have. Right. It's just it, it's a good detail. It's like she would have no idea what telekinesis is like am I experiencing a miracle? What's going yeah. on? She, yeah, basically. She's kind of having a Joan of Arc experience in her mind. Oh my god, yeah, she totally is. I didn't... Yeah. <laughs> so Tommy and Sue are talking about Carrie. She's like, I I want you to ask Carrie to the prom. I feel really bad for this thing. And like, she's the one who the teacher specifically was mad at of the g- whole group because it's like, you should know better. You're one of the better kids. Yeah. So she's like, I do feel bad about it. It's really eating me up. And she had been one of the two where uh, the the teacher was asking all of the girls when she was lining them up. And it's like, oh, yeah, who are you taking to prom? And uh, Chris has it's with Billy something or other. Billy uh, fucking Travolta. 
Billy Nolan. And yeah. just, it's like, who? <laughs> Billy Nolan. I'm like, yeah, because he doesn't go to school, I think. Right. And uh, uh, Sue, of course, is with Tommy Ross. I'm like, well, aren't you lucky? <laughs> oh, my God. The rage and venom in the teacher's face when she says that. Aren't you lucky taking Tommy Ross? The teacher is mad. The teacher, like, I, I mean, I get it that she's mad about this thing that is pretty egregious, to be fair. Yeah. Like, it's it's a bad reaction, but also at the same time, she understands it. I think maybe she's really mad at herself to a degree, so it's kind of they're getting the splashback from her anger at herself over it. It's hard to say. There's There's something going on with this teacher that we are not privy to. She's amplified. Maybe it's yep. just maybe it's just the unleaded gasoline. It could be. Oh my God! Yeah, it's about the time for it, isn't it? <laughs> so Chris and Billy Travolta introducing uh, John Travolta driving uh, around. <laughs> hey, I'm John Travolta. I'm smiling and driving a car, and I'm drinking, and I'm being charismatic and getting out of tickets with the cops. I'm so cool. He's having the greatest time of his life all the time. He's like a big old golden shepherd. It's just he's got a real bad owner right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> there, There's a really great POV moment. And again, just the, the camera taking POVs and sort of uh, being people's eyes. The, the moment where he's casually like he's talking to her and just it pans down to look at her boobs for a second and, <laughs> and it cuts to him grinning and like there are some friends trying to get him to come do a thing and he decides not to hang out with them after looking at her chest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a very clear decision making process for him. <laughs> oh, boobs, he's though. He's not a complicated character. No, we don't really get what drives Chris. We absolutely get what drives Billy. It's just Chris. It's boobs. It's the possibility of sex. Yeah. Or, yeah, Billy. Billy is into it. Yeah. So he's drinking and driving. One of his friends throws a beer, so he's just drinking and driving. The police come by, and he almost gets caught. But he, he... Tosses the can aside, but oh no, sin of all sins, he got a little bit of beer on Chris. No, no, he he broke, like he he hit the brakes too hard, and so, oh, and then through that, and so she dropped her makeup. Oh, that's even worse. She keeps, yeah, she starts calling him stupid shit, stupid shit, stupid shit. So he slaps her. There's a lot of slapping in this movie. There's a lot of slapping. He doesn't like being called a stupid shit. No, he really doesn't like it, and she says it a lot. <laughs> it's her main go-to. I mean, but he is a stupid shit a lot. He is, and it's also a bully thing. Like, she is yeah. a bully in every element of her life. It's not just in her negative relationships and the positive ones, too, as much as they are positive. Yeah. Bullying is what she does. So she oh, calls yeah. him a stupid shit a lot until he blows up. And also, they obviously just have a looks and sex-based relationship, status-based relationship. There's no... They they share no interests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't even really talk about their lives or anything, or what they do, <laughs> or the people that they know. Yeah, it's... And it's, like, directly contrasted here between them and Tommy and uh, Sue, because the, the two of them are 
doing homework together. Uh, Sue's working on her homework. Tom, Tommy's just watching a Western on TV. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, they, they actually can just hang out together. They can share interests. They're sort of a, a little bit more of an actual couple. And he agrees to ask Carrie out. So they also have... It's it's a give-and-take relationship. There's actually <laughs> some... Uh, it's not one person controlling the other. It's not contentious the way the Chris and Billy relationship is. Mm-hmm. Although it's also not as sexual. So we, we get Chris and Billy making out in his car, and he's like... <laughs> Tries to get her to touch his dick. It's like dumb shit. And he slaps her again. Yeah. But then she starts to give him a blowy. Oh, my God. I want you to do something. (laughs) And I'm just I know it's coming, but like she's just going, oh, Billy, oh, Billy, oh, Billy. And it's like, you know, or I think I know what she's going to say. But like just as he's about to come, she's like. I hate Carrie White so much. Yeah. <laughs> and he just stops. He looks at her. He's like, ooh. <laughs> he doesn't know who she is. I mean, he doesn't go to this school. <laughs> Carrie White is not known. <laughs> not part of their friend group. Like, oh. So, yeah, it's it's funny. It, it, like, oh, it, there's nothing in it for him. <laughs> no. Except the sex. He's like, no. oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> So uh, Carrie's, meanwhile, she's in the library next day, continuing her research into miracles and telekinesis. She's got a whole bunch of books. She's really getting into it. Yeah. yeah. It it does show that she's bright and that she can learn and that she wants to. It's just she doesn't really have the opportunities to in her household. Uh-huh. And Tommy approaches her and she's like, oh, it's about uh, sewing? <laughs> like trying to think of something that it could be about that wouldn't be against religion it's like hmm (laughs) sewing that's something mom does that isn't god (laughs) and he asks her out to prom and she just runs away without answering (laughs) i get it (laughs) yeah yeah it's like no i don't know this is this is too much (laughs) and tommy's just like what okay huh and she, she goes to talk to the gym teacher because the gym teacher is sort of uh, the closest thing she has to a mother figure, which is pretty rough. Yeah, that's sad. It's real sad because the gym teacher has anger issues. Like, she means well, but she's not altogether well herself. No, no. And Carrie, like, you know, she is immediately worried that it's a trick. Uh, but I thought it was like even here, I still thought it was. Oh, OK. But yeah, it's it's not a trick. And uh, the, the gym teacher, Miss Collins, I should say, I don't think I've mentioned her name, Miss Collins. She encourages her to accept, which is weird because like in the next scene, she tells her to you know, she, she like goes to Sue and Tommy to not do it. Yeah. Like, make um, up your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And. <laughs> Uh, she, yeah, because Miss Collins then goes to Sue and Tommy's like, are you serious about this? I mean, you know, you can't go without a date, which also what? Since yeah, when? also what indeed? Yeah, you can't go stag to this prom since when? When's that been a thing? Yeah, well, uh, how else are you going to uh, exclude the uh, gays, minorities and people who aren't popular? 
Right. It's weird. Like, I've just never even heard of that. So it's strange. Neither had I. Uh, I, I don't know if that's just a, another thing that specifically is for what you're talking about, that, you know, for, for again, the metaphor, the White House, Christ looming over the White House and shit. But mm. she's like, Tommy is going to look ridiculous coming to the prom with Carrie. It's like, really? That seems unfair. And Sue says, we don't care how we look, do we? <laughs> Very much <laughs> speaking for Tommy. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say that it's interesting that this is a movie where women are kind of in control of every relationship. There's not really a guy who's in control of a relationship anywhere. No, no, not at all. <laughs> so uh, Tommy goes to the White House because he, he wants to ask her again. Yeah. And she agrees mainly just so he'll leave. <laughs> yeah basically it's like no no if you can't come in if mom sees that the boy is here oh my god i will be beaten and taken into a closet yeah and like the more he's standing there the more she's like oh fine fine i'll go just go yeah and the skies are really stormy but uh, at this point this is where like storm brewing through all of this stuff uh because the next thing that's going on is chris and billy Visiting Farmer John's packing plant. Very famous, real murals in this location. So cool. Oh, okay. Those are real. All right. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think still there. Cool. Cool. You see a lot more of them in... Oh, what's the movie? Uh, there's an Antonioni movie with uh, like a really complete survey of all the murals of Farmer John's. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Zabriskie Point has a whole bunch of them but yeah really cool murals just all of these uh pigs walking and flying to the slaughterhouse <laughs> yeah yeah and uh billy's like hey we're just going to go and break in here and kill a pig and hope no one notices we're just gonna break it well it's a slaughterhouse so yeah. we're they're they're going to break in and slaughter a pig in the slaughterhouse which that's pretty amplified and the the second guy, like his buddy, he initially is going to do it, but he won't. He he's he chickens out. So Billy is the one who does it. He he just oh, fucking clobbers a pig with a hammer. You know, intense. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like uh okay, what the hell is the point of this? You're going pretty far just to bully someone. Yeah, it's it's already a lot. And <laughs> like you can go to jail, <laughs> dude. So continuing the stormy night. Uh, over a very eerie candlelit dinner with the Last Supper occupying the complete space in between the two of them. Uh, the Whites are discussing her maybe going to prom. Yeah, and of course, uh, Mrs. White is like, hell no. Well, yeah, I mean, again, literally religion in between them, keeping them apart. And yeah. Carrie's like, I want to be normal. I want to try to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. which is interesting uh it, it, therapy language yeah which i don't know where she would have gotten that from <laughs> maybe she wasn't just looking up telekinesis maybe not so uh yeah uh mom throws a drink in her face <laughs> yeah ultimately that like i want to be a whole person like well screw you yeah, throws a drink in her face and extinguishes all of the candles which, you know, puts her in darkness on that side of the room. Mm -hmm. 
And just lightning flashing as they continue to argue in this dark room. Every time lightning flashes, you just get a huge flash of the, <laughs> the Last Supper stretched in between them. Yeah, and it's not like the, the main painting. It's like somebody's fan art of The Last Supper. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is a fake print. And it, Carrie is like, everyone isn't bad, Mama. Everything isn't sin. And Mama's just like, oh, my God, the devil's got to you. You're, you're trying to say there's things that aren't sin? Oh, no, no, no. After the blood comes the boys. Ooh. I've seen it. They take you in their cars. <laughs> like, oh, my Lord. <sighs> it kind of sounds like maybe she had a bad sexual experience. Like maybe when she was Carrie's age, maybe she was assaulted. It, it could be, but still no oh, yeah no she's completely fucking demented she's off the rails she is the villain yeah. <laughs> and it, it just seems like maybe it's sort of a thing where she tried to step out of her comfort zone back in the day and uh, it just you know it, it never worked out and she's like no and that's final and tries to walk away but carrie starts closing the windows and doors mm. with her mind so she's manifesting her power to mom only. Yeah. And she's like, things are going to be a little different around here, mama. Well, first she try. she's pleading with her at first, oh, like, yeah, please right. sit and talk to me. Like, she's still willing to have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. But mama is not. It's like, I'm going. Things are going to change around here. And of course, mama calls her a witch. And Satan's working through her. No, Mama, this is me. No, you just don't know it's the devil. He entered your father and carried him off. And Carrie's like, look, everybody knows he ran off with another woman, Mama. <laughs> For, you know, mysterious reasons that no one can figure out. Yeah, it's not hard to see why. Everyone yeah. knows. Yeah, he ran off because you suck. And meanwhile, in the gym... Billy rigs up the blood bucket over the stage. So it's already in place. It's, it's again, the, the bomb in the briefcase. It's right up there waiting the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. You know it's there for... We're at about the halfway point there. So they set this up real early. Mm -hmm. Although I did think at first, like, I always thought that the prom scene was the last scene. I didn't know there was anything after that. It's more just the prom scene goes on a really long time. There, there's it so does. much to it. Yeah. It's like a solid third of the movie true so carrie sews her own prom dress because she's she's gonna make it it's like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter and i like that while she's doing the sewing mom is just swaying in front of a bible <laughs> <laughs> oh! kind of cracked me up <laughs> so freddie who's Billy's pal, who doesn't seem to go to the school. It's the thing you were talking about where he just gets on the decorating committee without doing anything. <laughs> yeah, it's literally like, how do you do, fellow teenager? They're like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'd like to get on the decorating committee. He's like, well, I don't know you. I, I, are you even in any of my classes? And, uh, well, I guess, sure, I guess we could use someone. Can you show up at this time? Like, no, nah, no, nah, I mean, I'll show up in time for prom. <laughs> yeah, I'll show up at eight and put me in charge of counting the votes, please. Yeah, and like, okay, I guess so. And PJ Souls uh, starts spreading some gossip 
No, she she's in the the hair salon getting her hair did <laughs> with her, her little her red hat. <laughs> we haven't talked about her little yeah. red hat. It, it's a PJ Souls trademark. She wears her red ha- her red baseball cap in everything. She's got it in Halloween. She's got it in a rock and roll high school. And yeah, she does this. Is she the one from Halloween who was like, I want a beer? Yes. Was that her? That's oh, okay, her. okay. And the one who's always saying totally? Oh, yeah. That's her. So in this one, yeah, she, she's she's getting her hair done on, like, you know, one of those big, uh, what it's do you mean? big salon it? hair Salon chair. Thing. Yeah, the, yeah, one of those like, hair things. And she's got her, her cap sitting on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> so funny it's it's great (laughs) great detail uh and she's gossiping about tommy taking carrie to prom so it gets out Mm -hmm. people start asking sue's like yep it is it that's the truth yeah it's weird that sue's not getting any flack for that like hey so did tommy break up with you nobody asks her that nobody really asks why she's like no yeah yeah, it's fine It's, it's chill so chris comes to help decorate the gym well she comes to uh, she comes to see the, the decorations happening <laughs> to tell PJ, basically. It's like, oh, I'll be there. And there's going to be a surprise and you'll be in on it. But she doesn't tell her really any more detail about it. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone outside of Chris, Billy, uh, Freddie and his girlfriend. I think they're the only ones who know. I think they are. Until the until yeah. it happens and right. everybody yeah. knows. Where where like I think like PJ is one of the ones who's collecting the ballots and stuff, but I'm not sure she's aware of it at the time. Although she's the only one who laughs, so I don't know. Because hmm. even Freddie doesn't. Ultimately, Freddie ultimately gets kind of upset by it. Yeah. So, kind of like how he did at the when the when they were actually going to slaughter the pig, and he's like, ah, I don't know, actually, maybe not. This is this is pretty far to go to bully someone. I usually just push him down. Yeah, he he's uh, he's the swing voter in <laughs> in the group. It's like, well, oh, I I didn't think the leopards would eat my face. Yeah. So we get more goofy music for the prom preparation montage, which is kind of fun. So Carrie tries on lipstick at uh the department store it's just it's it's not for her <laughs> i love that you can see like in the mirror you can just see the person at the department store just watching her put on all this lipstick just like horrified like oh she doesn't just, know how to like yeah there's the the lady at the counter watching her trying and failing lipstick. <laughs> and we we see the boys all rent tuxes the one of the guys chooses a t-shirt tux of course yeah, they have this whole big debate about it. It's like, I like tuxes, I just don't like me in tuxes. They do like a fast motion thing of their, uh, like a fast forward of their conversation, and then they stop, and he's just saying the exact same thing. Yeah, they just keep, you know, they they all end up in really ridiculous tuxes. Got a real puffy shirt on Tommy. Oh, of course, he's got to be the puffiest. Yeah. And then... In her bedroom, and it's the first time we've seen the lights on in her bedroom, which, again, just sad. Yeah. Uh, Carrie preparing in the mirror. And she's got the corsage, and she's feeling pretty good. Uh, she's got a picture of Tommy clipped out of the newspaper next to the mirror, which is really Aww. cute. 
Oh. A normal teen girl thing. She gets to do a normal teen girl thing. Right. She she really thinks like, okay, things are changing. I can actually sort of be a real person for once. And she's like, look, mom, uh, Tommy got me this corsage. And mom, of course, leans in. I can see your dirty pillows. Ugh. Mom, gross. <laughs> yeah. Ew. They're called breasts. Mom, every woman has them. <laughs> I can just imagine the mom. I didn't know that. Well, mom also thinks everything can just go on as it was. He's like, no, no, I've got a great idea. We'll burn the dress together and pray for forgiveness instead. <laughs> Won't that be wonderful? Yeah, like she just does not acknowledge that Carrie is a person. Just can't do it. Completely incapable and just like, no, Mama. And of course, Mom starts throwing her most famous fit. Like, there's an entire Adam Sandler bit based on this on one of his albums. They're it's, all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. But uh, <laughs> Carrie pushes her down with her mind, just like knocks her down on the bed and, like, stop it. I've had enough of this. <laughs> just yeah. sit there and don't say a word until I'm gone. I, just, yeah. I don't even want to hear it anymore. But, 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 shove. But, but, yeah. but, shove. And uh, she says on her way out, I love you, Mama. But Mama replies, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And he's like, yeah, good, good, great. Okay, cool. That's, uh, yeah, mm, great. But I, I think it, it's interesting how Mom sort of represents her internal monologue as well, because... Mom has just been a monologue outside her all of her life, so it's mm -hmm. become totally internalized because her her mom's the one doing the he's not going to show yeah. over and over again. It's like, Mom, I'm already anxious. Stop it. Yeah. And the same about the anxiety over public humiliation. The They're all going to laugh at you. It It's her own inner monologue, too. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like We've seen her do that. We, we saw her uh, have the same upset... Uh, to the first thing, you know, the in, yeah. in the shower, which this will be a repetition of. And Tommy, you know, Tommy shows up and he's like, it's going to be okay. They're a good crowd. And they sort of are. But there's that one moment where she imagines them all not being. Mm -hmm. And her imagination of them not being good is enough. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I would say again uh, reflects the uh, uh, the political element of this. Oh so, yeah. <laughs> so, but they they go in and everyone is genuinely very welcoming. They're all pretty happy to see her, and no one is mean. The, the only bully just is is absent, so it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah, and and they don't even really like her all that much anymore these days. No, because she's psychotic. She got yes. everyone in trouble. Yeah, she got everyone in trouble and then got herself out of the punishment that she got everyone else into. Yeah, although I think she's suspended from school and is technically not supposed to be at prom. Oh, well, she's <laughs> definitely not supposed to be there. Yeah. So uh, there's Miss Collins comes to talk to her and she tells her about her own prom where she wore just these ridiculous three-inch spike heels and it was a disaster. They hug. It's very sweet. Aww. And there's the the sort of magical dance. Uh, she and Tommy have a dance. Uh, the band uh, playing is is like the song is there must be a God. 
Could it be <laughs> that he's heard me at last? Yeah. <laughs> Just the camera spinning around them as they kiss. Spinning oh, and spinning and spinning. Spinning and spinning. I was getting sick. That the camera goes so fast by the end of it. It's just going faster and faster the whole time. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's spinning with them initially and then, you know, their kiss, and it's supposed to be dizzying. Like she is dizzy with mm-hmm. her prom excitement. And she asks him, like, why did you ask me to prom? Uh, and he, he kind of keeps relying on them, like, well, you liked my poem, yeah. as he said a few times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, basically yeah, just like... It's not. A bunch of non-answers, like, you know, I wanted to. I decided yeah. to. I asked you to because I decided to ask you. And I guess he can't really say it's because my girlfriend wanted me to, but he is, like, he does say a few times, but I'm genuinely happy to be here, and... What does it matter? Because we're here now and we're having a good time. And he's genuine about it. He is having a good time. He does like her. Yeah. So uh, Sue sneaks in. Because <laughs> she's like, yeah, let's, let's, I, I got to see the results of my meddling. Uh, <laughs> she's like, she is in parallel to Chris. It's just mm-hmm. her, her good intentions and Chris's bad intentions dovetail into a disaster. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the the king and queen vote starts and backstage, Chris, she's, you know, hiding under the stage and she's got the bucket and everything. And she tells, I think she's just saying it to Billy that she's fixed it so that Tommy and Carrie are going to win prom king and queen. Yeah. And we, we do see PJ Souls and Freddie. Uh, gathering ballots and then dumping them and throwing in their own. Yeah. Which is yeah, interesting. They, I wonder if they would have won anyways. They could have. Because uh, everyone I, seems, we, everyone's pretty happy. You know, there's there's no discord about it. Yeah. Um, it it does seem like Tommy kind of automatically would have been. It it does kind of seem that way. I mean, he's the star of two sports. Yeah. And also just generally well-liked in classes mm. and stuff. So as Sue is peeking out from one of the corners of the stage, the camera starts to follow the string that's just on the edge all the way up the wall and to the bucket, you know, the bucket of blood in the rafters. Yeah, Sue can't really see it from where she is. So she's like, she's like trying because she knows something's up, but she can't really see. So she's trying to get her better look. So she's got to come up from behind the stage. Well, she... She sees the rope twitch, but not quite yet. Yeah, yeah. Because first, the the camera is lingering on the bucket in the foreground without her having noticed it at all yet, and it it's lingering there in the foreground while Tommy and Carrie are in the audience, uh, announced as winners. So it's mm-hmm. like looming on them as the spotlight hits them uh, and being announced. So it's like. Okay, here, we're we're setting it up. It's above them. Yep. And there's this very long slow-mo sequence while everybody's clapping. It's it's Carrie's one moment of winning. She mm-hmm. gets to have her win. Yeah, she goes up on the stage. She's all she's all happy and everyone's clapping clapping for her. They are. Yeah, genuinely. And yeah. it's this it's it's during the slow-mo that Sue notices the rope twitch. It's like, "What the heck's that?" And 
does the thing that you're saying. She follows it around. She's trying to figure it out. And Miss Collins in the audience sees Sue looking at something and lurking around. It's like, what's going on? And she suspects her of causing trouble because she suspected her the whole time. Yeah. And and so had I pretty much up until Tommy picked her up and was being decent. I was like, yeah. okay, maybe, okay, he's actually okay. But it's another thing of good intentions screwing someone over because she prevents her from intervening. Yeah. She throws her out. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Sue finds uh, Chris and Billy and, like, dives under the stairs after her, after them, but... Miss Collins like grabs her and yeah, tosses yeah. her out. She she drags her out, and I, I guess it's too loud for her to be able to say, uh, hey, they're going to do something horrible. Stop them. Uh mm. she's she's unable to. She gets thrown out, which is good for her, because you know, she's the only survivor. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh because it's right after she's thrown out that the bucket is uh dropped, the bud, you know, falls on Carrie, and it's played out silent. Mm-hmm. which is an interesting choice. And we see PJ Souls and Freddy laugh, and only them. Yeah. And it cuts to Tommy and just mouthing, yelling, what the hell, because, of course, still silent. But yeah, then, yeah, he's, like, pointing where the bucket was, and you can tell he's like, what the fuck? Well, he, like, he's not pointing where the bucket was. He's just yelling, what the hell, and then the bucket lands on his head and kills him. Right. <laughs> the, Wait, the, I thought the bucket just knocked him out and then he died in the fire. I'm pretty sure it killed him. Oh, God. Because uh, it's a fucking heavy metal bucket falling from the rafters of a school gym. That'll really do some damage. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not like one of those. I, I don't know. I guess I just thought it was more like one of those cheapy aluminum buckets. But yeah, from that high up. Yeah, OK. All right. Yeah, I kind of do think so. Because yeah. it, it's where Freddy stops laughing. He He sees the and like. You know, PJ, uh, you know, hits his shoulder, but like he sees that happens like, oh, shit, we screwed up Mm -hmm. and he stops laughing. And then it's that weird moment where it's sort of her internalized. It's it's mom internalized again. And they are all laughing at her in her Mm -hmm. mind. She just sees everybody laughing, but it's not it's weird. It's a vision of them laughing, but the laughing isn't current. It's the laughing from the opening sequence. Oh, I didn't. I had no idea. It's the same. It's it's the the replayed audio of the period sequence, and you know, it's again, it's the blood coming down. It's mm-hmm. it's them repeating. But it's you know her pulling the audio from that previous time when everyone did laugh at her because they're not doing it here. Right. So then split screen. She starts going on her rampage. She closes all the doors. The light turns red. Yeah, now this this sequence I've seen about a dozen times, even if I haven't watched the whole movie. It's legendary. Like, this it's, is the sequence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she gets him with the fire hose, which shorts out the spotlights, which electrocutes Mr. Fromm, the asshole English teacher. <laughs> and yeah, the principal. The fire, yeah, the hi- fire hose is just spraying people down, like just bar- barraging them with water. And, like, they, a bunch of people had been up to the stage to, uh, you know, kind of fireman carry Tommy out because he's been hit by the bucket. And, you know, they're all like, oh, shit. So, and Mr. Fromm and the principal go up to grab the mic stand. And with the water, they get fucking electrocuted. Yeah. Which is rad. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a 
that that one feels semi-justified. Like obviously they they don't deserve to die for just being mildly incompetent, but they're they're, okay. they're semi-villains in this story at least. They helped this happen. Miss Collins really gets it hard. Oh <laughs> for, yeah. For having like she had the best of intentions, but it really didn't work out. But yeah, she gets crushed. Mm-hmm. The I I don't really know what exactly it is. It's like a big frame that's on the wall i guess maybe related to a sporting thing because like it it comes down on a hinge and crushes her yeah i'm I'm not really sure like a plaque or something maybe it's i don't know it's huge like it's gigantic uh mr from from being electrocuted he like stumbles back to the backdrop and he catches on fire and then the backdrop goes up and just it, it's that amazing shot of Carrie walking through the chaos slowly, covered in blood, just flames yeah. surrounding her. Yeah. And she's the only one who walks out. Yeah. That's it. She she walks out and the doors close behind her and it's just flames and people screaming and no one else gets out. Well, Billy, no, Billy and Chris got out somehow. I think they took off immediately after they uh, dropped the bucket. Oh, that that would be how. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think they just immediately got out of there just in case mm-hmm. you know, so they couldn't get caught again. Yeah. And she, as she's walking down the road, just covered in blood, a fire truck passes her in the opposite direction. And then yeah. it's interesting how Chris is driving Billy's car. I would think it would be something he would not accept. Well, you know, I mean, she's got her. I got to run over Carrie, Carrie White Bonner on. She knows. Yeah. And he knows better to fight her when she's like that. Right. And Chris does try to run her over, and it's that great. <laughs> that <laughs> the was fucking car so sudden. Just flips, spins, explodes. They're Rolls, dead. Blows up, kaboom! And Carrie ah, gets home. Jeez, my car! <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, Carrie gets home. All of the lights are on, and it's they're orange and ominous. They, they, it hasn't really had this color palette before in the house, and the place Jesus. is a fucking mess. So many candles. <laughs> Everywhere. They're on every single surface. Every Where like, was she keeping them before? Every raised surface has one on it. It's like, mm-hmm. it's a huge fire hazard. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. And there's that really creepy moment where Carrie goes to her room to wash the blood off, and she passes her door, and her mom is just looming behind the door pretending to be a mannequin. Very creepy. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, she she comes out and she sees her and she tries to reconnect with her. She says, it was bad, Mama. They laughed at me. Hold me, Mama, please. Mm. Of course, (laughs) Mama has completely lost touch with reality now. She's like, well, I should have committed suicide the first time I had sex. You know, when she had the premarital sex. But that's not the one thing. Oh, not premarital. Well, yeah. And Ralph promised me never again. (laughs) yeah and it's the second time she talks about how he had whiskey on his breath and i liked it (laughs) and i liked it and that's just too sinful that's why that's why carrie is the way she is yeah she enjoyed sex uh and it's the worst thing so so she stabs her uh mama stabs carrie Uh and she it's this crazy like she carrie falls down the stairs and mama comes down with it 
And it's that moment where she makes the sign of the cross with the bloody knife. Yeah, that's fucked up. Ooh, that's very fucked up. Uh, I, I Just, you know, very metaphorical as well. Mm-hmm. And she continues to advance on Carrie. So Carrie basically stabs her with every available sharp object. Yeah, she uh, she pins her hands to the doorframe. And when it's done, she's looking exactly like that zombie Jesus doll. She's yeah, she's Jesus Sebastian. She's the closet Jesus. Uh, the the one that gets me the most is the potato peeler in the chest. That looks real. Rough. <laughs> Oof. Oh yeah. The potato peeler especially. Just that's like multiple blades. Yeah, that would that would hurt. That would really hurt. Uh, and Carrie basically just pulls the whole house down on herself. She just it, it is sort of a an, a self immolation at the end. Uh, it, it is an act of suicide. It sort of burns down, and she gets back in the closet. I first. thought that she was gonna like that the closet was gonna be safe from the wreckage, and she was just gonna get out. Yeah, uh, but no, she, uh, no. She just takes it all down. She she goes in there because that's what she's supposed to do when she's done wrong. Yeah, and she she burns the whole place down. And there's that. And before the end, we just have this one brief bit where Sue has a dream where she comes to put flowers on the ashes. Yeah, the for sale sign looks like a cross. And, of course, somebody's graffitied uh, Carrie White Burns in Hell. I would say the for sale sign is a cross. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is just a cross. Like, oh, yeah. It's very tall. And, yeah, someone has scrawled Carrie White Burns in Hell with an arrow pointing down into the I don't know who ashes. would have written that because no one's alive. Well, I, I would say that, you know, all of the parents are alive. You probably still have uh, a, a lot of people who are very upset about Carrie White. Oh, God, Mrs. Chris. Well, whoever that is. She seems to be pretty chill about it because, or, well, I mean, we don't really get to see her. She just comes to comfort uh Oh, not Mrs. Chris. I'm thinking of Mrs. Snell. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm talking about like Chris's parents. Yeah, <laughs> or Billy's parents, or just all of these parents who don't really know any of the background. This is just going to be one of those things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, it's it's the very famous moment. This is the first time it was ever done. This is, uh, I, I think, De Palma has recognized this as his most uh, copied moment. The thing that he added to cinema that everybody does now is course carrie's hand popping out of the grave at the end and grabbing her arm so i could not believe that this was the first and i mentioned in the chat i was like i was sure that romero had done this first but romero does it in creep show which is in 82 six years later and that's also stephen king i think they're directly intentionally borrowing it back there oh okay um yeah like I thought for sure some of like the zombie movies of the 50s or 60s would have done this. I thought Ed Wood did this. Well, the thing is, zombie movies didn't exist in the 50s and 60s. Oh. The first one was 68, Night of the Living Dead. Before that, they were voodoo. Oh. So you didn't have people coming out of graves all that often. It's just not that common. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of tracks. It's just, I mean, horror is not something that you were allowed to do in any sort of extreme way up until the 70s. Hmm. Horror made huge leaps and bounds in that decade. Well, that's that's definitely true. So yeah, you know, the hand pops out of the grave. She grabs her arm. Sue wakes up screaming, and that's the end. She's just uh, the trauma of it is going to be with her forever now. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, and maybe hopefully she handles it better than Carrie's mom did. Yeah, I would have to think that she probably would. She does have actual support. <laughs> she, oh, parents who care and understand that she doesn't want to read a Bible. Doesn't want the teen Bible. It's the like, teen I, Bible. Yeah, probably not. Oh. Gonna have to say no on that one. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that yeah. is it. Uh, I think it's a great movie. It's a I think it's really classic. good. Aside from the pig's blood thing, the bullies aren't that extreme. They're just normal bullies, based on my experience with bullies anyway. Oh, yeah, it's fairly realistic high school bullying for the most part. It's just the one big nuclear event that yeah. sort of uh, <laughs> takes it too far. And again, I, I, I kind of wonder about it as potentially being kind of a metaphor for, like, uh, uh the, the the whole prom thing being a metaphor for the uh the the convention like a political convention it, it could be but i'd have to know about i'd have to know more about uh, u.s politics of that era before i could really comment on that i had like i've i've read fair amount about uh the the nixon and uh Reagan, like the the 70s the pass-off between nixon to Carter, to Reagan. I, I'm pretty familiar with that era, and it kind of feels like this is reflecting that. And it definitely is coming out of the same anxieties in that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, not a fully formed theory, but I, I do think there's something in that there. And just overall, I mean, just the the style of it is great. The, the amazing use of split diopter, uh, the fun yeah. music, the, mm-hmm. the Hitchcock-isms, the... the the Godardisms. It's great. Yeah, no, I, I really liked it. Uh, I thought it was well, I thought it was a good coming of age story. I hoped she survived, but you don't always get that with Stephen King. <laughs> no, it's it's a brutal one. I think, and yeah. there are sequels. I've never seen any of the sequels. Uh, I, I, there was a Carrie Two and the Rage Carrie Two, and I, I don't think either of them have her back, which is weird. But like the rage was in the nineties. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, I remember seeing the ads for it, but I never saw it. I hear it's terrible. It kind of would have to be. Maybe the fact that there's Carrie sequels is why I thought she was gonna live. Oh, maybe. And there is a remake that just came out in like 2021, I think. Oh yeah. It's a fairly recent one. I hear it also is bad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, I don't know how you could tell this story better than this though. It was 2013. It was that long ago. Oh, wow. But no, yeah, I agree. I don't think it could be done any better than this version. And it, it like Sissy Spacek is so perfect for Carrie White. Uh, Piper Laurie is so perfect for Margaret White. Uh, mm-hmm. William Cat is great as Tommy Ross. Uh, you know who played Tommy Ross in the 2013 version? Uh, who played Tommy Ross? Ansel Elgort. You know, the Who's baby that? driver guy. Uh, oh, the the kid. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it. No, Judy Greer is the teacher. Okay. Not sure. bad. Julianne Moore is the mom. That's kind of good. Oh. Oh. Ooh. Chloe Grace Moretz was Carrie in the 2013 one. That's interesting. Yeah. Decent cast. Yeah. yeah. yeah cast is intriguing who plays travolta oh my god i hope they just got travolta to be chris's like really old travolta boyfriend (laughs) it's a dude i've never heard of called alex russell australian dude 
don't know. Because <laughs> who could play Travolta besides Travolta? Well, Nick Cage can. Absolutely, but too old. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I never really heard much about that one. I, I think it just got semi-okay reviews. And it's like, yeah, whatever. You, you can't beat this one because this one is sort of an acknowledged classic. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the image of her, like, covered in blood with the dress, like, just soaked is iconic. Oh, yeah. No, it's incredible. So, do you have any last thoughts on Carrie before we move on to our second feature? Uh, no, I think we've covered it. All right. And we're back, and De Palma Week continues as we're talking about his 1998 film Snake Eyes, starring Nick Cage. I'm on TV? Am I on TV? It's like you the first a, thing he says. <laughs> yeah, you, you got a lot of big cage in this, but not like huge cage, but it's that blockbuster cage, the post-rock cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being really excited about this one. It got a lot of advertising at the time. I went and saw it the day it came out in the theater. Loved it. Uh, everybody else hated it. You know, it's a critical failure, commercial kind of flop. And really? it's kind of forgotten now. Oh, yeah. Uh, never oh, did man. very well. It's it's not really talked about. I think it's a lot better than its reputation. Uh, it's It's not... It's certainly not as iconic of a film as Carrie, but it's so much fun. Well, no, it's it's not going to be iconic because he's doing Hitchcock, but it, it is a it lot is of a fun. Pastiche. I really liked it. Yeah, it's definitely him doing pastiche, which is a thing he liked to do. He he does a lot of Hitchcock pastiche. Uh, and this one, very specifically, it's Rope X, uh, Men Who Knew Too Much. And it's, as you mentioned when you started to watch it, yeah, it's a locked room murder mystery, but in it's a, a stadium big, with a million people just, a real big locked room yeah it's just doing the old style concepts but doing them big and it's very old hollywood like nick cage's performance is very jimmy stewart based yeah um he is playing a jimmy stewart character while but not thankfully not doing a jimmy stewart impression right that, that would be it could be, a, It'd be funny it'd be pretty funny if he did the voice well, I'm Nick Cage doing Jerry Stewart. He could. I also got a show. He, I feel he like, could pull it off in the right movie. Yeah, I kind of feel like it could work. Uh, could. Well, one one of the big things is this movie had a completely different ending that didn't work, so they had to just sort of come up with a different ending on the fly. Oh, what was the ending they were planning for? A tidal wave hit the casino. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of references to it in the movie. It's all sort of built up, and there is a couple parts. Like, you, you do see a big wave following an ambulance at one point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I guess the effects didn't work out. It was too expensive. It just wasn't coming together. So they kind of scrapped it. And it, it there, there's that part where Cage at the end is like, I almost drowned today. I was like, when did that happen? <laughs> you know, I thought about that because he's saying, I had a dream that I was back in that tunnel underwater. I was like, yeah. What tunnel? Under what water? You yeah, were in a tunnel, but huh? did, the wa- did the dream add some water? Yeah, so it's related to this whole tropical storm thing that's sort of a runner in the movie that kind of gets abandoned. Yeah, originally, yeah, the, the whole place is going to get hit by a tidal wave that just like washes through everything and sort of, you know, reasserts the landscape. But yeah, just it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine... I'm... 
this is 98. It's the same year as Escape from L.A., which had a really bad tidal wave effect that's kind of legendarily bad. Oh. I have a feeling that maybe they saw that or, you know, it's it's around the same time. It would be very similar digital effects and they put it together. and It's like, this looks terrible. We're not using it. Whereas Escape from L.A. is like, let's run with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one uh, where Steve Buscemi is watching the tidal wave follow his car and Kurt Russell surfs onto his car from a tidal wave. <laughs> what? How have I not seen this? <laughs> and and Steve Buscemi does like the silly cartoon double take. You know, he he's looking <laughs> to the side, not even noticing a tidal wave next to his car on this mountain road. And then he's like, "What?" And it's Kurt Russell surfing <laughs> next to his car. I mean, that movie, it's a whole thing. Oh, wow. I mean, that that is that is the blockbuster era into which this was birthed and not a good environment for it. This is such a classical blockbuster. It's true. It doesn't feel like it came out in the same year as like the or the same era as the rock and all that. Right. Um, this is post rock. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do think I understand a little bit of the critical, uh, uh, the lack of critical reception that it got. If I hadn't watched a bunch of Hitchcock, I don't know what I would have thought of this either. I, yeah. I think I still would have liked it, but I don't think I would have loved it. It's it's so heavily pastiche, like you kind of do need to be aware of the Hitchcock rhythms to really appreciate it, I feel. Like, I know when I saw it in theater, it was right around the time I was getting into Hitchcock. It's like, I was renting all of the Hitchcock movies on VHS. So going and seeing this in the theater is like, oh, this this rules, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Where I think a lot of people are like, what the fuck is this? Although you should kind of know it going into a De Palma De Palma was like really Hitchcock heavy in the 90s. <laughs> Raising Cain is just pure crazy Hitchcock pastiche. And I mean, so's Body Double, so's Dressed to Kill. <laughs> yeah, I like how uh, this movie, even more so than Carrie, I think, is just us watching people watching things, watching people watching things. Well, surveillance is so big in this because it's this casino where everything is watched and everything is taped and they have recordings of everything that everyone can look into. Yeah, but there's so many that, like, you still have to have a person watching it and, like, going through all of it. So mm-hmm. so that's the big thing is, like, it takes time for them to find the shit they need to find in the surveillance. Right. It's a mixture of the being seen and potentially being unseen. Mm-hmm. It's It's a more interesting gray area version of it. Yeah, so we start with our we start with our reporter talking about the uh, hurricane. Er, er, no, sorry, sorry, it's a holiday weekend and we don't want to close shit, so it's a tropical storm. Tropical storm, which yep. you know is supposed to ultimately be paid off with a tidal wave washing through this place, but uh, yeah, they they couldn't do it. Well, we got you know some lightning and that was a thing and some rain. Yeah, I mean it, there's a storm. Yeah, there's a storm. It's there's it a lot is, of wind in that one part. Yeah, it it is relegated to the background pretty much right after this. And we only ever just kind of see rain out the window until the very end where it's still raining. Right. And it seems like maybe a whole bunch of stuff has happened, but we never saw it. It, 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 And I guess that's kind of what happened ultimately. But uh, it, it does leave sort of a loose thread where most of De Palma's movies are pretty heavily constructed like hitchcock everything has a purpose Mm -hmm. whereas here it's just uh yeah there's a storm in the background and 
<laughs> we re- we make a big deal out of it a couple times and then we completely forget about it. Yeah, um, it was <laughs> to the point where I wasn't even waiting for the storm to pay off because no attention has been paid for it. Yeah. Or, so I'm not like, oh, man, when's this storm going to do shit? No, it's all, oh, man, when is Cage going to find out that he was wrong about everything? Mm, true. So the the opening scene is all one big, long, like, what is it, 13-minute shot? Yeah, 13 minutes, just one long shot. And just the elaborateness of how many extras are involved in this shot is unbelievable. Yeah, extras and extras and people who aren't extras and who are actually important. It took me a while to realize that Cage isn't the one I'm supposed to be watching here. He's the distraction. Well, there's just so many people. Uh, yeah, yeah. Every character in the film is present in this shot, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, a feat. Pretty much the whole movie takes place in this shot somehow. Right. Uh, this is the one thing. And then the rest of it is them sort of examining it and trying to learn what actually happened during it, which uh, is quite a bit like a previous De Palma film that I mentioned, Blowout, uh, mm. which is a Travolta one where he's an audio guy and he goes out and he does a sound recording and he finds out that he may have accidentally recorded a murder. Oh, so it's him just re-examining this piece of audio tape and using all sorts of things to boost it and play with the audio to see if he can figure out what's on it. Mm, so it's, okay. it's, this is kind of like that you're going back to, but, but it, you know, it's more meta because you're not going back to a thing that was recorded. You're going back to the beginning of the movie. It's like, okay, let's look, let's look at that one shot. Wasn't that one shot totally amazing. Let's think about that one incredible shot for the whole rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's look at it from different angles now. Oh, from this angle, you didn't see that that was happening. Uh, right. Here, here's some things that were happening on the edges of that shot uh, that you had no idea. It's like, yeah. let's look behind the scenes. Yeah. Or the fight that Nick Cage was watching. Here's that fight. It's terrible. Oh, the fight oh, was it's... a total fake. Oh, the fight was so brilliant and how bad it was. Holy shit. Again, <laughs> and you don't see it at the beginning. Right. And again, it's it's the meta thing of it turns out that there's no people actually having a fight. They're actors. You know, everybody's <laughs> acting instead of being uh, they're all actors instead of people who are uh, watching a fight. Everybody who's involved in the movie who isn't an extra. <laughs> so going through this, uh, I went through a lot of this opening scene the second time around in slow motion after after knowing how it all goes together mm. and everything is there. You can see everything if you know where you're supposed to be looking. Oh yeah. Uh, the only thing you can't see is uh, what the, the flying drone camera picks up. Right. And cause that's the only one that Gary Sinise's character did not know about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see all the characters doing things and it was, it, all just looks like fans doing shit in the background. There's this one obnoxious fan who's just like, yeah, man, here comes the pain, man. You know, there's guys like that in a fight and turns Mm -hmm. out he's important. Yep. And in fact, if you're looking, you can clearly see the radio in his uh, ear, at least in the Blu-ray, maybe, maybe back in the nineties with technology, you might not have been able to. Well, I mean, I saw it on a big screen. I think it could have. Uh, yeah, that's good point. Good point. But this stuff is made for a big screen, especially true. something like this, which is a huge panoramic blockbuster film. 
but you still have to know that you have to be looking at it. Otherwise, oh, yeah. there's no chance. Uh, yeah, you see the red uh, woman. You see, you see the lawyer getting into an argument with somebody. Uh, and all of this is important. But Cage is just there being like, I'm the king. I'm the best cop. It's fight night. I'm not paying attention to any of this. Pay attention to me because I'm doing a full Nick Cage right now. He, and it worked. <laughs> he feels like an early version of his character in Port of Call, New Orleans. Like a, a less intense version. Like he's not doing crack cocaine at any point. At least not that we see. Not on screen. Uh, there's cocaine allegations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, he's a, uh, I guess, a, a less obvious corrupt cop. But he is very much a corrupt cop who takes money. Uh, we see him shaking down a drug dealer uh, for money to bet on the fight. Yeah, and the, the drug dealer, is he also, is, I can't remember, is, is he involved in some other way as well? The drug dealer, uh, Tyler brought him there. Tyler, the, the champion boxer. The, right, okay. He brought him there for drugs and parties, and the lawyer's like, man, why did you bring this guy here tonight of all night? Uh, the answer is Tyler needs drugs for this night. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's like shaking down the drug dealer for money to give to a crooked bookie. Well, actually, I don't even know if the bookie's crooked. He, I mean, he's, a he's involved. Yeah, he, Bookies well, are yeah. like that. That is kind of a crooked <laughs> business as a rule. Yeah, he gives it to the crooked bookie to bet on the champion, of course. And then he goes, and as he's going through the arena, we see him, like, we follow him through all these different tunnels and all this stuff. And there's so yeah, much going on Yeah, all one continuous shot. It's, it's a very long shot and always moving. Yeah. yeah and it starts and with a news report outside. Like, oh, it, it yeah. moves from that. Well, how they do it is, like, we're watching the TV screen of the news report. So mm-hmm. then we just pull out from the TV screen to where Nick Cage is like, I'm on TV. Mm-hmm. So when he finally gets to his seat, we meet the other star of the film. One, uh, uh, Gary, Gary Sinise is his name. Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. As uh, Kevin Dunn. He is the guy who is in charge of the security for this uh, high profile government official. I think like a secretary of defense or a senator or something who happens to be watching this fight. A defense secretary. Yeah. And uh, Sinise, very Doyle energy. Doyle from rear window. Very, very. Uh, until it becomes until... <laughs> a different sort of energy and like becomes more like uh, uh, Brandon kind of energy from rope. Oh, yeah. Like halfway through the, the film, both him and Cage do a complete transformation just by changing their posture a little bit at their facial expressions it's incredible mm-hmm. and cage changes his outfit which helps a lot but yeah they just mm-hmm. they both go through this transformation halfway through and they just become completely different characters for what i thought they were yeah it's pretty cool uh it's and it, it is basically you know the tagline believe everything except your eyes it's a movie that is always playing with your expectations and is intentionally misleading the viewer it's it's sort of like performing a magic trick on you mm-hmm. it's definitely the feeling that i got when i was watching it it's like this is one of them magic tricks mm. i'm gonna stop looking at cage and look at everything else but you gotta look at cage too because <laughs> he is doing stuff and he is ultimately eventually dead set on solving this mystery yeah, detective rick santorum 
Republican <laughs> Pennsylvanian senator. Santoro, not Santoro. to be confused yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're they're talking. These guys are childhood friends, uh, Dunn and C- Cage, Rick. They went different paths. He became like a big army guy while Cage became <laughs> a shitty corrupt cop. Yeah, he's and, he's corrupt, but he's not like super corrupt. He's he's petty corrupt. Yes, yes. It, it is not dissimilar again to the Port of Call New Orleans character, just not as amplified. Uh, more mainstream, more uh, uh, audience friendly. Yeah, a little more, a little easier to swallow, I think. Could still be the lead in a '90s blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And as they're sitting down, uh, Dunn is lamenting about how the set or the the secretary like is such a publicity whore they had they had the announcers be like oh we have a very special guest here tonight sitting in that very exact seat right over there in case anyone wants to shoot him uh secretary of defense uh whatever his name charles kirkland yeah which is uh yet another brilliant misdirection because he's like oh man just putting a big fucking spotlight on his head in case anyone wants to shoot him He's he's setting up. Okay, so spoiler alert: Dunn is the villain. He sets yeah. up this whole assassination, this extremely complicated thing to just pull the wool over everybody's eyes. It's a very Brandon-like plot. Yeah, um, like it is a magic trick. It's like a uh, like a David Blaine or a, a David Copperfield kind of thing, where it's just a huge, elaborate magic trick in front of a lot of people. It's a sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he goes off because there's a mysterious woman dressed all in red. So he's like, oh, she's suspicious. I'm going to go check her out. And Cage is like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And Cage is just obsessed with the fight because it's just awful. And he's getting so pissed off. Well, it's yeah, like, the, the fight is a disaster. The 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 guy who he has bet on has, seems to be throwing the fight. And it will turn out he is throwing the fight. And <laughs> he's putting a lot of effort into throwing the fight because it's hard. Yeah, he's having trouble throwing the fight because the other guy's not very good. And the other guy is. The other yeah. guy was making me so mad. But we barely see it. Like we're we're not really seeing it. We're just seeing Cage reacting to it, being pissed off about it, and not really noticing much of the stuff around him. But he sort of is. He's seeing yeah. the people, but not really picking up on who they are or uh, recognizing any sort of threat. Yeah, he he glances at the here comes the pain guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, he's just just some drunk. A few other times, he glances at some other people. Uh, and yeah, at this point, I just think he's losing the fight. I didn't realize it's just a fucking awful fight. Uh, we have a woman, a mysterious woman in white with an obvious wig comes and begins talking to the senator, who Cage is kind of also ignoring after after sort of hitting on her. So this is Julia. This is Julia, which I didn't learn her name until like the very end. Somehow I never caught it. So, yeah, our, our, essentially our third lead, Carla Gugino, uh, who's mm-hmm. in, you know, all sorts of stuff. I don't know. People yeah, would know I, her from things mostly like really mainstream stuff that I'm not that familiar with. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I had seen her before either. I was trying to try to recognize her and I couldn't. She's uh, she did a whole lot of TV in the early 90s. Mm. She looked like she could be a TV star. I think she was. The fiance in Polly Shore's son-in-law, if I recall oh. correctly, you know that one where I've she, seen it, but yeah, 
you know what I'm talking about. So yeah, no, I think she was yes. the, she was the fiance for him to be the son-in-law. Uh, oh. I think I, I believe that's my recollection. Uh, yeah, and I could, think she's the mom in all the Spy Kids movies, oh, which no I kidding. also have not seen. No, I haven't seen it. I saw Son-in-Law when it was new and yeah. never went back. Yeah, no, I'm not rewatching Polly Shore movies these days. <laughs> No, thank you. I've seen like two of them. That's enough. I probably saw all of them at the time, or most of them. <laughs> Biodome, fucking jury duty. Yeah, I think I saw most of them. They're bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, I saw jury duty. I didn't see Biodome. I, I, I had learned by then. I caught Biodome on VHS. Uh it had a really good soundtrack. I had the soundtrack CD. That kicked ass. Oh, Movie, oh, not yeah. so good. You know what's yeah, weird? <laughs> this is totally a tangent, but Tenacious D are in Biodome. No kidding. Yeah, like Jack Black and Kyle Gass actually appear as Tenacious D in that movie. Hmm. Weird. Back then, I wouldn't have even known who they were. <laughs> no, neither would have I. Yeah, that, that's kind of the thing. I mean, no one would have. They're, they're just <laughs> totally unknown. But they were still, they were already doing Tenacious D way back then. Oh, Which wow. Interesting, you know, okay. prior to Jack Black being well-known. Anyway. Anyway, uh, while everyone's getting distracted by everything, and the audi- we're getting distracted by Polly Shore, and the audience is getting distracted by the terrible fight, <clears throat> suddenly, bang, bang, bang! Oh, our senator guy is down, and our woman has been shot. She's grazed. Not, not really shot. You know, no, yeah. uh, no, because Nick Cage was at the last second able to push her down, mm-hmm. and as he's looking around... Uh, he sees uh, Lincoln Tyler, the fighter who supposedly just got knocked out, also gets up and starts looking around before realizing, oh, shit, I'm actually supposed to be unconscious. Yeah, he, you see him kind of like, what, what the hell? And notably, when uh, the senator is shot, Julia is speaking to him and has a file and stuff. We don't oh, really yes. get much of a clear idea of it, but obviously she's trying to tell him something and like she is urgently trying to get to him. Yeah, and the la- the only thing we do hear her say to him is, you're not the only one who's going to be sorry. Yeah. So, sounds ominous. So, uh, yeah, at this point, Cage has decided, well, he goes and finds Kevin Dunn first, who ran off to find the red-haired woman. And he's freaking out. He's like, oh, man, this is all my fault. I shouldn't have left my post. I should have, uh, I should have been more attentive. But, you know, she just... The, I was following that red-haired woman and Cage is like, okay, first, don't say redhead, don't say woman. You were following a suspicious suspect and then you found the assassination and you or the assassin and you got him. You're a hero. That's how I'll spin it. He has spun a... Sh- he, he's like clearly someone who has spun a shooting before. It's, it's not <laughs> yeah. something that he's new to as a corrupt cop. Mm-hmm. And here... it. This is where the first place that the movie kind of threw me off, because here it's like he's taking the Brandon role to uh, to comfort a uh, a distressed. Uh, oh, what's the other guy's name? Philip? The other guy who uh, from Rope. I think it's Philip. Yeah, I believe it's Brandon and Philip. Yeah. Who is like, OK, well, yeah, you did this thing, but we're going to just spin it this way and everything's going to be fine. You just got to listen to me. And as I'm watching this, I'm like. Why is Cage doing the Brandon thing when Gary Sinise with his suit and his hair and all this stuff just looks exactly like Brandon from Rope? That seems weird. Well, it's 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 the pastiche thing where it is him 
pulling from all the different sources to kind of keep you off guard uh, as well as oh completely but and it's it's also just a thing where we're supposed to not be sure who's on the level and it, it just you know he's a corrupt cop and it's showing his history as a corrupt cop coming clear that he's like okay well i know exactly how to deal with this sort of situation i've been here before yeah, uh, I'm going to be honest. I did not suspect Sinise's character until we see him be evil. Although that does not take long to be revealed. Uh, about halfway through, a little bit, a little before halfway through. It's it's relatively early for this sort of thing. I mean, it's the only True. big reveal. It's well, halfway yes. through the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just found it weird that it's like, oh, wow, this guy's like in charge of this part of the secret service and he's like freaking out like this and he needs a city cop to tell him how to handle the situation that seems weird but okay yeah it's almost like it's suspicious and not believable yeah but you know what (laughs) i just he said i'm under a lot of pressure with guarding this thing and i failed and i i believed him so so the state police come and Cage does the whole, you know, jurisdiction dick waving thing that cops do. He's like, no, this is my case in about six different ways because I'm a material witness and I'm a cop and blah, blah, blah. And it's not a casino because uh, it's an arena and all this other shit. And the guy's like, ah, whatever, fine. Yeah. And it, it, this is where it becomes a locked room. It's like we're mm-hmm. locking everyone in here. Nobody gets out. Yeah, you can't lock 14,000 people in here. Oh, yes, I can. And yes, I did. And it's kind of more for Kevin Dunn, really. This yeah. is all part of his plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because now, well, now Kevin Dunn, he wasn't able to get the, he wasn't able to assassinate the girl. So now he's got to find her. So it's good that everybody's locked in. Right. You know, it's a, a, it is his way to finish everything up. I would imagine that's kind of his plan, is that if it, there's anything to go wrong, everything's locked down, and he's in charge of the guy who's in charge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, under the, it, it's, it's a really brilliant plan, but... Wild guards. Yeah. Snake eyes. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, it's Nick Cage. He didn't, he didn't realize that Cage would just suddenly be like, this is the mystery that I'm going to solve. Well, I guess he didn't realize that Nick Cage was at heart a good guy, that he's a corrupt cop, but he's not villainous the way he himself is. It's uh, it's the Brandon character completely underestimating or getting wrong the morals of the Jimmy Stewart character, just mm-hmm. like he did in Rope. Yeah, and he is very Jimmy Stewarty. Mm-hmm. When he gets the new suit, because his suit's all covered in blood, so he has to get a new one to do the rest of the investigation. The way he stands and like walks around and carries himself is very Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. and he stops doing a lot of the cageisms. Yeah, like he'll still do one, do one or two of them. He has a couple big moments when he has to do those things, but I mean Jimmy Stewart did those too. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he gets kind of that cadence. He sort of slows down. It feels like a very classical old Hollywood performance, which mm-hmm. I think also Gary Sinise is sort of natural to doing. Both of them are very well cast for that. Oh, yeah. They both feel like classical Hollywood uh, type actors, like people who would be in the, the classic Hollywood system in a way as character actors. Mm-hmm. Which you don't really have much of these days. Not really, do you? I can't think of any. 
Yeah, there's some, just not not a lot. There's that guy who's Elvis now, Austin Butler, I think, who uh, played Elvis know. in that Baz Luhrmann thing. And his thing is now he's just kind of Elvis all the time. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So they're waiting for the feds to arrive. Uh, and then the idea is that Nick Cage is going to be the one who writes the report to give to the feds. And then that's because he's the one who wrote the report. That's what they're going to take as the truth. And Sinise will get away with his uh, dereliction of duty is is the plan mm-hmm. as it stands right now. Uh, but Cage also decides he's going to go and investigate. And uh, I don't know. If, I think it's about half him wanting to investigate and half him just being fucking pissed at Tyler, uh, the boxer, because that's the first place that he goes. And he's just harassing the shit out of this guy. And he's like, and sign my son's autograph. And you know who you remind me of? The famous boxer who took the fall. It's you. <laughs> and right. Eventually, he gets Tyler to tell him about what happened, about how he did, in fact, take a fall. But nobody was supposed to get killed. Right. And yeah, we it's here that we see the actual fight. And this fucking... It's so bad. It's such a terrible fight. I would be so pissed if I paid money for a ticket to this fight. Um, because Tyler's, like, trying to lose the fight. But this other guy's just dancing and like, ah, you suck. Ha 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 ha. And he's not fighting. And it's... it's I love it. <laughs> I love this terrible fight. Yeah, it goes on quite a while. It, it is him just not uh, able to do any fighting for whatever reason. This guy who's like the other guy is supposed to be aware that the fight is being thrown. I think I I couldn't get any confirmation from it. I, nothing in the movie confirms that he's involved because it's weird. It, it seems to be it maybe a weird. situation. It seems to maybe be a situation where only one of the people who is in the fight is aware that it's a fixed fight, which is very strange. I, I, it's, that's just not usually how you would do it, I would figure. Usually most, both people are in on it. You'd think. I wonder if uh, somebody else paid the other guy to take a fall. Like I don't somebody know. unrelated. I don't know. He, the way he this guy's got... acting is weird. He's just kind of showboating is the thing. Uh, but he, he's also just not a very capable fighter, it seems like. No, no. Um, <laughs> Tyler basically mentions everything that this guy is doing wrong, and it's like, man, even if he did hit me, it wouldn't even hurt. And we confirm that, yes, the, the, fall, the punch that knocked him out never actually connected, and that he was faking being unconscious, which is why he was able to shoot, like, get right up as soon as he heard the bullets, then get right back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do flash back to them, uh, Tyler and the lawyer talking to the drug dealer and the bookie before Nick Cage barged in at the beginning of the movie and get a little bit of background about that. The bookie's like, hey, why am I getting all these huge bets against Tyler? That seems weird, right? And Tyler and the lawyer are like, we're so offended and everything. Get out of here. And then Nick Cage comes, you know, right. Nick yeah. Cage is the whole thing up. Right. So it, it it is a situation where there are leaks like people do know that this fight is being thrown mm-hmm. or at least they suspect it. And the signal for when he was supposed to go down is that drunk guy shouting, here comes the pain. Yeah. And Tyler's like, man, I wish I could have punched that radio right through his ear. And Nick Cage is like, radio. 
and then the wheels start turning and that's when he starts thinking that this might be a huge conspiracy right because well it it has to be a conspiracy because there's five people involved Mm -hmm. that's the definition of a conspiracy i actually didn't know that i i learned that from this movie uh but yeah we have so far what we have is the woman in red who got done out of there uh tyler who threw the fight the shooter the drunk guy with the radio and whoever was on the other end of the radio and Dunn is like I don't know. This guy just seems to be a Middle Eastern terrorist lone wolf guy. Why don't we go with that? Yeah, and it works in terms of him uh, not seeming like a villain because that also does seem like a pretty basic narrative. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's he's set up the plan in a really logical way. Yeah. Uh, Here we get uh, we get Dunn's story manufactured, of course, about what happened when he chased the red haired woman, uh, basically chased her across the arena, was like, ma'am, I need to see your ticket. And she's like, oh, I do this stuff all the time. And then he happens to be right there when when the shots fired. But we see even in this story, he knew exactly where to shoot the gun. Right. To kill the assassin, which. Yeah, immediately from just sort of a weird position. I guess the idea is that he is very familiar with guns and was able to understand where the bullets were coming from. But and could could like maybe hear where the shots were coming from. But it, it yeah, it, it stretches credibility. But, you know. In the moment of him retelling it, he doesn't give any rationale for it. So, yeah, he just no one's pointed his gun at a wall, and then the assassin's dead. Well, he's hidden in like this, yeah, in, in like a one of the the I don't even know what you call it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what it is. It's it's like a light fixture, kind of. Yeah, sort of, but like a really big one. It, it, it's it's just like big plastic tubing around the lights. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you could actually see him in the opening shot if you pause at just the right moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, here's where I started thinking it was falling apart, because it's like, how did he know to shoot there? He would have had to have heard the bullets, and the guy was using a silencer, and it's a loud arena. Although we do find out later on that Kevin Dunn's character, or that the character does have really good hearing. And he's still, outside, like yeah. he's on the outside, quiet part of the arena, and the the shooter would be between him and the audience. So it, it doesn't totally uh, stretch credibility, but yeah, it, it's, it's a flaw in the story, but one that's really easily papered over if nobody's really paying much attention to it. Which at this point, Nick Cage wasn't because he's like, Hey man, this just proves you're human. It means yeah. the plan worked. That was the plan to give you a boner. You got one. I love that line. <laughs> you got one. Whoa. I've heard I've only ever heard it as like part of Homestuck Nicolas Cage compilations. I never knew what movie it came from until this. Mm. Yeah, it is one of the more popular, like probably the most memed moment from this one. This one doesn't give you a whole lot of that stuff. Not really. No. So uh, so Dunn is like, hey, well, why don't you go chase after the the other two people, the the red haired woman and the drunk shouting guy. And I'll chase after the woman all in white who's not part of this conspiracy yeah they're they're both gonna split up and look for the other people but everybody's involved oh everyone's involved and he gave he gave cage those two people because he knew they'd be long gone and he wouldn't find them and to make sure he won't find them it's right around here i think that he reveals that he's the bad guy he goes into like this 
sweet red staircase to get underneath the arena where the two other people are waiting. Yeah, he goes and meets up with his other two conspirators and kills them and hides the bodies. Yeah, and like it's... a tunnel under the arena. So like, mm-hmm. you know, a hidden away spot. Yeah, yeah. Like there's they mentioned it a little bit. There's all these tunnels under the arena that they can't possibly have guards everywhere. Mm. Which, you know, is really convenient if you're trying to do a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, so Cage is go- looking at the cameras in the security room. He's already made friends with the security guy, uh, looking for the red-haired woman. But he ends up finding the white-haired or the white, the woman in white, Julia. He finds her instead. Yeah. And well, of course he he doesn't find the other one because she's because she's dead, dead in a tunnel, and gone in a tunnel. <laughs> but he finds her and he's going after her. And Dunn is now going after her because there's no need for him to go after the other two. Right. So Julia is uh, she she's like stolen some clothes and yeah. is hiding out in the casino now. Yeah, she's trying to seduce this uh, this fat guy. I wish I knew the actor's name because I saw him all over the place in, in the 90s. He was everywhere. Um... Not, he's like the fat guy with glasses who's not Wayne Knight. I'm sure you <laughs> I'm sure people know who I'm talking about. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, me neither. But he he was everywhere around this time. Oh, it, I think it's Kevin ones. Dunn. I believe that's, Kevin Dunn. That's the name of the Gary Sinise's character. Yeah, but there's there's an actor named Kevin Dunn oh. who plays a guy named Lou Logan in this movie. Oh, that's no, him? that's the fight promoter guy. Or the, Lou the Logan's ring the fight promoter? Oh. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, so, I don't remember because like I know Mike Starr is in this. I I just can't picture who this person was in the movie. I don't recall this character. Uh, the one who she seduces and like goes up into his hotel room, but doesn't actually want to have sex with him and just wants to hide out. Yeah, I just I don't remember the character at all. Oh, Not okay. Pretty insignificant in terms he of the, is the purposes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, but she manages to convince this guy to get on an elevator with her, but Kevin Dunn is on the elevator with them. And for some reason, Cage doesn't seem to know that Dunn's on the elevator, and he's talking to the security guy, and they're trying to track where where she's going, and he's on a different elevator, and it's this whole thing. Eventually, they all end up – she's in the hotel room, and Dunn is wandering around the floor trying to find her. And it's this really cool scene where it does like this pan over – like bird's eye view of all the different hotel rooms. It's such a cool bit because it's like the camera is following. It's like doing an overhead uh, where it's just like the room that you're in. And then it just keeps on going instead of like stopping at the wall and just starts going through over other rooms. Yeah, it's it's so cool. And we see like, yeah, it's all the same kind of stuff you would expect to see. Like one room where people are having sex, one where they're having a party. And in all of them, the radio is going off about the wounded uh, secretary. Mm-hmm. And it stops on Julia's room where we see she's like trying to hide out, but also trying to get out of being raped. Eventually, she's able to she gets kicked out of the room and opens the door. And Nick Cage is right there and he barges his way into the room. Right, and there's this whole sequence where it's unclear which of them it's going to be, because we yeah. see both Gary uh, Sinise and Nicolas Cage closing in on the location of her, but uh, Cage happens to get there and get into the apartment first. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and the guy runs out and just runs into Sinise and is like, hey, some dude, you look like you're an official cop or whatever. Some dude broke into my room. Some uh, Nick Cage looking dude. Oh, well, I definitely want to check this out. But by the time they get back to the room, Cage and Julia are gone into the stairwell. Yeah, they've taken off and he's hiding her. He's hiding her first. Because uh, he knows there's a conspiracy. He just doesn't yeah. know Gary Sinise is involved in it yet. Oh, he he will continue not knowing for a while. Well, even it's though tough. He gets told. It's tough because he is like they're, they're childhood buddies and he can't yeah. believe he'd do it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so he's talking to Julia and we find out her whole deal. Uh, she works for the weapons company. Uh, they're doing a weapon, a new – they're testing a new weapon. Uh, the weapon doesn't work right, but the senator had all this falsified data given to him so that he would give the go-ahead to the weapon plan. Mm-hmm. And so she was doing this whole thing to try to convince the senator, like, hey, I've got proof this shit doesn't work. Don't uh, spend all the money and build this non-working weapon. Yeah, it turns out it's a whole scam where they've built this weapon system and they're trying to get the Department of Defense to buy it, but they haven't really worked out the bugs yet. It doesn't really function, but they kind of like his his explanation later and how he will justify it is that he's like, well, we figure we'll get the bugs fixed eventually, but we're not going to do it if we don't get the money now. So we got to get the money so we can fix money. it. Yeah, need the money, though. Yeah, and uh, but they figure that the they figure that the secretary is going to vote against raising the funding because that's where the that's where the political winds are blowing at this particular time. Now I don't know if that's necessarily true of 1998 USA, but it is in this movie. I don't know. Um, often, usually. Yeah, and she says like, hey, yeah, the the one who was in on all this, the one who." Uh, chased the red-haired woman and then just knew where the assassin was and all that, that was Kevin Dunn. And Nick Cage is like, nope, uh-uh. That's not how it happened. You're actually wrong. Kevin Dunn is a sweet dude, man. Yeah, he's and my she, best bud. I, I like, this is totally unbelievable to me. And she's like, oh my god, you know him. Uh, shit, I'm so fucked. And she's like, okay, you know, maybe I am wrong. My glasses got crushed. And Cage is like, your glasses didn't get crushed until after the shooting. Oh, fuck, you actually did see him. Oh, shit, I didn't have to know about this. And he does a little bit of a Cage freakout. It's it's pretty great. I, I appreciate it, him as a character. He's He is given the out for a second, and she is willing to give him the out. And when she does, it, it proves him to be the heroic type when he puts it together and is like, ah, fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he puts together, he, he like puts the pieces together and like, he, he has an out that he is allowed to take. And he's like, ah, God damn it. I can't take it. Cause I know you're lying now to, to throw me off it because I'm his buddy. And it's like, ah, shit, you, ah, that's real. Now, no matter how you look at it, I have to do something I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he either has to look the other way or send his friend up the river. Like, that sucks. And we kind of get the feeling that he is someone who is going to have to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll he'll try every possibility to 
uh, not have Kevin Dunn go down for it. But, yeah. you know, he's he's not going to let anyone else die for this. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, but it's basically like, are you sure you're the mastermind? You could not be the mastermind, you know? Yeah. Yeah, actually. It, roll on someone. Yeah. But no, it, it, that's not how it goes down. And, and that's a very... That's a very Jimmy Stewart thing. Mm-hmm. The like, I have to do the right thing, even though I hate it. Yeah. Um, you you gotta do the right thing at, at all times. There's a whole uh thing in uh Harvey about that. He's got a few great little speeches in Harvey about doing the right thing. Stewart does. Stewart, yeah. Okay. That's the movie where he's uh, best friends with an eight-foot-tall invisible bunny rabbit. You ever seen that great movie? No, but oh, I think I it's need the best. to. Oh, so man. That Very heartwarming. Like a... Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, I didn't talk about the uh, the villain conference center. Um, the guy who owns the hotel casino arena thing, Powell, who is also the head of the weapons company that's behind this whole thing. The great John Hurd. Oh, is that who that is? Yeah, you know, from uh, uh, stuff. Oh. He's he's in everything. He's in uh, Chud. Oh, That's oh, he, always what I think of first. Didn't he? Isn't he the chestburster guy originally? No, or no, it's John Hurt. Hurt. Uh, John Hurt is the dad in Home Alone, probably what he's most oh. famous for. And he was, he was Sharknado. Uh, probably. I mean, so many people are in Sharknado. People, a ridiculous amount of people are in Sharknado. He's the photographer in Chud. Okay. Remember? Like, you've seen that, right? Uh, I think so. I love Chud. I, I've seen Chud just way too many times, so it's the first <laughs> thing that comes to mind anytime I see Herd. But this set, this uh, conference center that only gets used in two scenes, uh, the one where where Dunn is telling Cage about the red-haired woman. Mm. And and this one here, where the guy's like, this was a good plan, it was supposed to work, and now you're saying there's all these loose ends because of a local cop? The scene has got this bright painting. It's like a lit-up painting of a sunset, a Mm. model of an evil villain lair skyscraper. It's pretty cool. I, I don't know how much of it is real. This is shot in Montreal, in fact. Oh, okay. Uh, at the uh, Montreal Forum, for the most part. Oh, see, this was so Hitchcockian that I just assumed that these were all constructed sets. Like it's it's a mixture, because uh, like De Palma, his thing is he does the Hitchcock stuff, but then he throws in a lot of real locations, and he'll usually use the non, like the the really fakey stuff to really front load it. Like you get a lot of that in Body Double, where suddenly it will be a rear projection shot of someone driving instead of just having someone driving in a car. And it's really jarring. (laughs) It's like, it's, you've just seen a whole bunch of real locations and suddenly it's just a cheap rear projection shot. And it's like, (laughs) Oh, that looks so strange and kind of jars you out of it. (laughs) Yeah. We we're kind of seeing the villainous plan apparently unraveling. Dunn's like, well, hey, I just got to kill this one girl. And then all that's left is me and two people I trust. So hold on, vis-a-vis it being the villainous, uh, uh, the the like, what did you call it, the villainous convention center room or whatever? Yeah. Uh, 
I think this may be a real location in the Atlantic City spot that they shot it at, which is currently the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino Atlantic City, but at the time was Trump Taj Mahal Hotel and Casino. <laughs> well. So, I mean, in terms of it being a big villainous lair uh, at the time. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, if it was Trump, it would be like gold plated, though. I mean, this is 98. I don't uh, know. Yeah, it's true. Where are we at? Uh, and it depends on, like, how much Trump cared about this one particular villain room. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, like, I'm not sure where this specific spot is, but I know some of it is filmed there. That That's, like, the location that this is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And they did spend a couple weeks shooting there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and now the boss is all freaking out. Is like, wait. Are, are you saying you're going to silence me from the plan? Am I on the list of people you trust? Uh, come on, man. Uh, hey, hey uh, we're buddies, right? He's like, yeah, but of course everyone is expendable but him. Of That's course. The point. Yeah, it's, it's his plan. And, and if he dies, then who's going to see what a great plan it is? Well, who's going to like uh, this defense thing? It's an important deal. Yeah. So we have Cage uh, in back in the arena, like the boxing arena part of it, and just looking around at everything, looking at where uh, Julia said that. Oh, first we have Cage hiding Julia in this uh, room off of a wind tunnel. I'm not really sure what it's supposed to be. It looks like some kind of a storage room, but it's clearly connected to the outside. Yeah, it's very far out in like. It's kind of like one of those tunnels where the where Sinise hid the bodies. It's a far away, out of the way, uh, uh, service tunnel type place. Mm-hmm. So and yeah, he after, locks her in the room so yeah, she can't he, get out. Yeah, um, to keep her safe, which does end up working and would have continued working anyways because it's just so out there. But he's looking at he's looking at the. Uh, uh, the archway where the assassin was and where the red woman took Sinise to, I, I think he's he still wants it to not be done. He wants. Yeah, he's, he's looking for any out. Yeah, like, and he's here. He sees like probably one of the world's first drone cameras. It's like this uh, blimp thing with a camera on it. This little remote control blimp. Yeah, which is cited at the time as being quite new. That, mm-hmm. uh, it's why uh, Sinise was not aware of it. Only the camera guy knows about it. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't even hooked up to the network. It has its own tape. Mm-hmm. And as Cage is watching it, I really like this shot because uh, Cage is watching it. We see him watching and seeing Sinise, and we look at Cage's reaction. But just in the upper left corner of the screen, where the steps to the exit of the room are, we just see these boots. Someone's mm-hmm. there and and has Someone's been watching. there for yeah. And of course, as he comes down, we see it's Sadis, and he's like, yeah. uh, "I specifically said I didn't want a camera in that area." And they have to have their whole confrontation about it. Of course, uh, Sadis rants about how the soldiers who were at this—I guess it was an attack in Iraq on a ship or something—is like they needed, they deserved a good point missile defense system and that's the reason i'm using for all of this i don't know where it would be at this point because this is 98 i guess probably still iraq because like we're we're a good deal off the gulf war we are but he he said Sidis 
it is mentioned that cities fought in the Gulf War. Okay. So that's what this is. It's kind of hinted that Cage either was there or could have gone but didn't. It's not really clear. Like, they, they know each other from before that. Mm. Well, yeah, they're childhood friends. Yeah. Cage is like, you can't call yourself a soldier if you're going to do shit like this. And that's when Sinise starts going off. It's like, soldier, I'm doing this for the soldiers. You just take your money and you're a corrupt cop and you take money and all that shit. You don't know anything. In fact, here, why don't you take a million dollars to tell me where the girl is and walk away from this whole thing? And here... I love the the silent cage freakout that he does here. He's it's it's not a, it's not a cage thing. Like he's very much doing the silent slow realization thing that Jimmy Stewart does in Rope, mm-hmm. where he's like just and he's like slowly getting a cigarette while Sinise is shouting at him. And yeah, like I say, I do think this is very heavily. Uh, a crossbreeding of Rope and The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is sort of Hitchcock's big set piece blockbuster of the 50s, where uh, it, it concludes with like a huge assassination thing that's going to take place during an orchestra oh. performance. Oh, that sounds a lot like this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that sounds fun. I'd watch that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at it's, the point it... I'd watch anything of his. Yeah, it's one that I have mixed feelings on because uh, I mean, there's two different versions of it. It's one he did way back in the 30s, and then it's one he did again in the 50s. And I think both of them have their merits and both of them have their faults. What's really interesting, the 50s one also introduced the song Que Sera Sera. No kidding. Yeah, it comes from that movie. Huh, or at least no that's idea. the movie that made it famous. Okay. It's got a musical sequence where I think it might be Grace Kelly. I can't remember now. It's been a while since I've rewatched that one. Oh, Grace Kelly. Amazing. Mm hmm. So <laughs> Nick Cage basically decides like, oh, man, that is a shitload of money. But you know what? Uh, all the corruption. Yeah, you're right about all that. But I never killed anyone. Yeah, he has a line. He has a moral code. And Sinise is like, okay, well, this obviously isn't going to work. And we do the reveal of someone standing at the top of the steps of the doorway again. And this time it's Tyler, the the champion boxer. Right. Sorry, Have we had that incredible shot where it has the POV of Tyler? Oh, oh, uh, yes. That happened uh, just after Cage or just after Tyler told Cage about the match. It's like and the coolest we, fucking shot. It's crazy. Yeah, it's a long POV shot, and it's the one where we see the lawyer talking to the bookie and the drug dealer. Uh, we see him, like, boxing in a mirror. Uh, right, that's the really crazy thing, is that it follows him in all this POV, and then it has him go up to a mirror, and we don't see a camera, we just see our boxer. It's like we're living in his eyes, and then it's like the camera just sort of drifts to the left, and then it's mm-hmm. outside of him, and, and then it like shows him at the mirror. That's so cool. It, it again, really... it's a magic trick. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I should have mentioned that, but that is a really cool shot. So now, t- <laughs> I love this bit because this is pure Nick Cage. Uh, Tyler is beating the shit out of Cage in the in the tunnel dungeon thing. Yeah, and they, Cage they is, brawl. They well, they brawl. No, Cage gets and the, the storm's shit kicking up big time too at this point. Mm-hmm. Because this is where, I guess this is where the tidal wave would come through, but instead they have that thing go through the wall. Yeah, yeah. 
and that that marble thing or that boulder right. or whatever it is, the globe. Yeah. yeah. So Tyler is beating the shit out of Cage, and Cage is he's just dancing. He's just doing what the cha- or the uh, the challenger guy was doing. It's like, come on, man, you can't hit me, man. You you suck, Tyler. <laughs> You're some champ, you are. And Tyler's yeah. like, man, come on, this sucks already. Yeah, he doesn't really want to do this. Yeah, knocks him out, of course. And Sinise is like, listen, if you do this, if you do the heroic thing, you know what's going to happen? The press is going to find out about all the corrupt shit you did, and your life is going to be ruined. It's going to be over. Or you could just take a million dollars. Come on, man. Just be the person you've always been. But he's got to rise above. And I I like that ultimately at the end we do see that it does go sour on him. Mm -hmm. But like he's briefly a hero, and it's like, oh, yeah, but all the corruption, though. Everything that Sidney says here comes true. Yeah, uh, his he, wife well, leaves him. His girlfriend leaves him. Yeah. Well, I mean, they they know about each other now. That's also a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's karma still. It's it, he he's paying the price for not being the hero all along. Mm-hmm. But he can be the hero now. Yeah. They leave to go look for the girl and leave the presumably unconscious Nick Cage, who gets up and begins making a beeline like a, a wounded hero walk right to where she is. Mm-hmm. But we also see as he steps into the shadow, we see a blinky light and he's got a tracking device on him. Right. Not that he needs it because Sinise is only following from like five feet away. Yeah. He's right there. And he's like leaving a trail of blood too. There, yeah. He's, he's very easy to follow. It's, it's a hat on a hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's very, very slowly making his way through the arena, through the tunnel with Sinise very slowly following behind him. And then we get, I never saw this in a Hitchcock movie, but this feels so Hitchcock. The thunder and lightning lights up Sinise through the skylight and and it shows a shadow on the wall and Nick Cage like stops for a second. Yeah, I think that's in Rebecca. It might be in a couple of them. Uh, definitely has been done by Hitchcock, yes. I had. I don't think I had seen it before, but I was like, oh, this feels Hitchcock. This is cool. I'm thinking it might be most famous. I It's been a while since I've watched it. I'm thinking Wait Until Dark might have a moment like this. Because uh, oh. it's... I, I Is it Wait Until Dark? Uh, hmm. I'm, I'm trying to... Maybe I'm misremembering it. Wait Until Dark is she's blind, not deaf. So, no, no, I'm thinking the wrong way. Hmm. This is a great movie. Uh, Audrey Hepburn trapped in... Uh, an apartment with Alan Arkin secretly sneaking around, but she's blind and can't see him. Oh, very oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Young Alan Arkin, like really young. Hmm. So as the storm picks up, the globe is rolling down the road. Apparently the cops are coming. Well, not apparently. The cops are coming and emergency services are coming. This is where you uh, see that wave following an ambulance that's like, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. The reporter is out uh, reporting on how it's really stormy now, I guess. Yeah, it's like, OK, the tropical storm has been upgraded and it's it's an I told you so kind of shape. Yeah. Hurricane Jezebel is really yeah. picking up. <laughs> and the, as the ambulance like dodges the rolling globe down the street, it. Or not ambulance, the police van. It like does this crazy turn and crashes into where Julia is being held. 
Right, comes through the wall. And they all, yeah, they all, like, come pouring out of the door. Uh, Sinise is there with his gun, and they're all shouting at him, like, put the gun down, put the gun down. We know who you are, we know, but you gotta put the gun down because you're under arrest. He's trying to, like, convince them that he should be allowed to shoot her, and there's just, he can't come up with the words because there's no real way to explain it. It's just, it's what he wants to do, and he wants to make it real. <laughs> yeah. No, He's like, I'm no, DOD. but I, cause I'm with threat. them. Yeah. She's a threat. She's a suspect. That's why I have to execute her on sight like this. And... And ultimately, he's like, ah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and then he shoots himself, right? He's just right? deer in the headlights in this whole scene because the camera, the camera's right on him too. He like goes for the door and he can't get it open. He's well, like, right. uh, uh. It's, it's again the camera seeing people being seen by a camera and him finally being seen the way he does not want to be seen. Yeah. So he, yeah, he turns around and then he shoots himself in the heart. Yeah. And uh, that's the end of that. So you telling me that the ending got changed makes a lot more sense because I don't yeah. understand why the police are arriving now and pointing their guns at him now. Yeah, it's, unless, it feels really out of nowhere unless there was some huge disaster that took place in the middle and that's why emergency vehicles are arriving. Yeah. Yeah, or unless <laughs> Nick Cage called them off camera and convinced them somehow – but he doesn't have the evidence until he has the girl. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it does kind of fit together a little funky at the end. It's like, huh, that, that tied up a little weird. I don't, I don't really understand how that yeah. fully happened. But it sort of works anyways in the moment. But when you put it together, like, oh, yeah, if there were a whole crazy sequence where a wave goes through the casino, that would have been really different. And I mm -hmm. can kind of see how that would have fit together more. Yeah, but... I like how it ended. I liked seeing the Sinise character, like, just completely in the headlights, like, no fucking clue what to do. No idea how he's going to get out of it. I, I, I enjoyed watching that. Yeah, he crumbles. It's good. Mm -hmm. Nick Cage's uh, public reputation also crumbles. Because, Very quickly. Yeah. It, it, it's fun. cop. It, yeah, it goes from the headlines of Hero Cop to immediately like, oh, and then all of this stuff came out <laughs> mm -hmm. like, the next day. Exactly what Kevin Dunn said would happen. Uh, he's lost his girlfriend. He's lost his wife. Julia finds him, though, and is like, hey, we should meet up. It's like, oh, well, I got to go upstate for 12 to 18 months. And she's just like, oh, I see. But, yeah. you know, when we when when they get out, they could do they could do a romance. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's maybe. possible. Yeah, it's possible. So uh, one we... thing before we move on, uh, I, I've, the, the name of the guy who whose uh, hotel room she was getting into, uh, it's, it's David Anthony Higgins, who's best known as uh, the, the dude on Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, he was on Malcolm in the Middle? Yeah, he's uh, he, I think he works with the wife. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 at the farm. He's the guy yeah. who has a crush on the wife. <laughs> yeah. I remember now. Yeah, that's, that's that's what I know him best from. <laughs> uh, I've seen him other places, but yeah, that's that's it. That's the yeah. one. Yeah, he's in like a bunch of stuff, but that is definitely the main thing I know him from, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I only knew him as the fat guy from the 90s and everything. It isn't Wayne Knight, so... Right, it, like it wasn't enough for me to go on, and I, I figured it out while while we've been talking. 
So one other interesting tidbit, uh, Kevin Dunn, uh, the first, it it was initially offered to Al Pacino. Oh. Would have been very different. That that would have been big. Like 90s Nick Cage v 90s uh, Pacino would have been very big. That would have been a very different uh, Kevin Dunn. Yeah. Gary Sinise pulls off the brandoniness of the character while still being a unique character. Yeah, I do feel like Sinise is really the ideal for feeling like a classical 50s Hollywood actor. I don't think Pacino would have done as well, nor the other person who was first cast but then dropped out, Will Smith. Will Smith? Will Smith was originally going to be, like, he was cast. Then he he decided he wasn't getting paid enough and quit. That would have been interesting for everybody, though. (laughs) I I do agree. I think it could have worked, especially 98. This is the same year as Men in Black, maybe the year after. So that's him at like peak charm. And oh, yeah. And then to have him be a villain. Yeah. No one would have seen it. Right. And it it would have been especially surprising because I think it's the first time it would have happened then. Uh, But, you know, I I think two villains. No, not really. Not usually. I mean, he sort of does in Bad Boys too, but I don't think that was the intent. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think Sinise is perfect for it because he really does embody the old Hollywood feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that perfect A-plus casting there. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have thought that Nick Cage would have done such a good, uh, would have evoked Jimmy Stewart so well, but he really does. I do feel like Cage is sort of a classic Hollywood actor. Like, he would have been great in the 50s and 60s Hollywood system as just a firebrand lead character actor type guy. Mm, I agree. I agree. I agree. I would have loved to see him in some like original Hitchcock if he had ever worked with him. Sure. There's Farley Granger who does a few Hitchcocks and he he died quite young, but he has kind of a cage energy. So I, I could really see cage Farley Granger being very similar styles. In, in their respective periods. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. I loved this movie. This was, this movie ruled. It's a lot of fun. It, it, it deserves much better than it's kind of negative reputation. Like I think it has a rotten on rotten tomatoes and everything. Uh, it's wild. No, it, yeah, no, it's a good movie. I mean, part of the problem is it opened against saving private Ryan. Oh, I think. well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't go to see Saving Private Ryan in theater, but I did go to see Snake Eyes. I mean, that's just me. <laughs> I, I did see Saving Private Ryan in theater, but not on opening day. Yeah, but yeah, it, it has a forty-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's crazy. It's so much better than that. That is, it is so much better than that. I, <laughs> I was shocked when you told me that this movie had a bad reputation. Yeah, didn't do very well. I, I, it got it. It made its money back, but just barely. That's that's a shame. That's it's a, real a bummer, it, especially because it's such a big swing. It's such an interesting, huge blockbuster style movie. It's like, yeah, let's do a '50s blockbuster in the '90s. Let's do it that old style, and it works great. It's just I, I have to assume that the discarded giant effect scene probably was a big problem and kind of poison for De Palma because he didn't really do anything big after this I don't mm. think this was like his last really big movie oh because this is the year after Mission Impossible oh okay oh yeah oh, and then right he did that 
And then he did Mission to Mars in 2000, which really stunk. And I think that really was like, uh, I don't know, guy, you're going to the indies again. <laughs> oh. Femme Fatale after that's kind of fun. That's a very Hitchcocky one, obviously. <laughs> Femme Fatale. <laughs> Sounds like it. I mean, oh. he, his career has been torched before. Bonfire of the Vanities in 1990 was a real career ender, and he came back from that one. So, you know. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's like one of the biggest, most famous debacles in Hollywood. Like, there's a whole book on it called The Devil's Candy. Mm, okay. Uh, oh, we didn't talk about, well, although we talked about it a lot in Carrie, about, we didn't talk about like how he uses split screens here for different parts. Um, like when people are telling stories, particularly when Julia's telling the story about Kevin's involvement in the assassination, and we're watching both Kevin and Nick Cage on a split screen at the same time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, split screen is a big part of De Palma's style. We we got to watch Sisters sometime, one of his really early horror ones where it's two twin sisters. And you'll get a lot of things where you'll have split screens of the two of them doing different things in different places. Cool, cool. And they're sort of like uh, psychically connected. Yeah, I don't, shit. I don't see a lot of split screens in films these days. True. It's one of those things that sort of became briefly in vogue in the 60s. And De Palma is sort of the only person who really kept doing it. It became his big trademark. Uh, no one else really uh, continued it because it is one of those distancing things. It's part of his Godard Brecht background where he kind of wants to distance the audience. Mm-hmm. He, he's not interested in making his films really natural the way a lot of people started to in the 90s and aughts. He just isn't interested in that. And I agree. It's more fun this way. That's <laughs> oh, a lot of fun. I like a naturalistic film once in a while, but style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this this movie's cool. It's a good time and, and a fun cage performance an underappreciated cage performance. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree. He only reaches maybe about a seven out of 10 on the Nick Cage freaking the fuck out scale, but you don't want to go higher in this movie. Yeah, you get just that one really important one, the boner thing. And yeah, otherwise he, he keeps under wraps. He does a classical performance. It's great. Mm-hmm. God, he's talented, though. Ah, I love that guy. <laughs> so do you have any last thoughts on Snake Eyes before we move on to our third part? Yeah, that was a plan to give you a movie boner. You got one. And we're back for our third and final section where we're talking about all the other shit we've watched on physical media in the past week and deciding what we're going to cover next week. Uh, First up is Gina. 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 And like Martin from Martin Lawrence show. No. Gina was his girlfriend. He said Gina a lot. It's really all I remember from the show, despite watching it for its entire run. Anyway, I never saw it. <laughs> this is a Canadian movie from the 70s. I think it says 70s, early 70s Canadian crime picture. Uh, 75, according to Letterboxd. So right in the middle, it's Quebecois crime thriller, like a Quebec uh, new wave crime sort of thing. And it's about it, it's very interesting. It's sort of about labor and exploitation of labor okay and it follows sort of two disparate groups there's this lady gina who is a sex worker and she's sent up to this remote northern town you know for on business 
So she's the lady on the poster who's dressed up real nice with all her luggage. Mm-hmm. And there's also a documentary film crew in this town talking to a bunch of factory workers about the labor movement and the history of exploitation of labor. Okay. And it, it sort of follows uh, the it's paralleling the exploitation of the sex worker uh, with the exploitation of uh, other physical laborers, which is interesting. So, yeah, that is an interesting take to have in 1975. That's that's it's something compelling. that's considered fairly, uh, fairly radical and new today. Yeah. And it's it's very Quebecois, I would say. <laughs> Mm. Uh, and so it's it's got all that stuff going, and then Gina ultimately uh, she is uh, gang raped by a skidoo club. Oh my god! Yay. And she uh, gets together a group of guys and goes and gets her fucking bloody revenge. Ah, Pretty female... good, interesting. <laughs> I wish I knew the French words for female prisoner scorpion. Uh, fem... Female prison war. It's... Prisonier. Uh, I don't know what scorpion is, though. Hmm. <laughs> Might just be scorpion. The scorpion. Maybe. Next, we've got Come With Me, My Love, which is the first of the two. Well, there's actually three, I think, but I only have two. The two 70s Doris Wishman hardcore features. <laughs> no. <laughs> Apartment ghost. <laughs> uh, you sent me some clips of this one. <laughs> yeah uh, apartment ghost <laughs> you're right so it, it is completely the apartment ghost film uh it, it is the classic doris apartment and there's just it's like a couple in i want to say the 30s or something in a flashback and the the guy catches the wife cheating and he kills the wife the guy and himself and then it's the killer who's haunting the apartment okay and it's weird. He he just becomes sort of obsessed with uh, the lady who lives in the apartment. Sounds about right. Uh, and just, I don't know, it's weird. Like, I, I sent you the clips that it, it's so badly put together. It's so incredibly strangely shot. There's that one part where someone comes to the apartment and introduces herself and it's two people talking at a doorway and i couldn't tell where anyone was so <laughs> it's shot the way an a 90s mary worth cartoon is drawn it's like <laughs> where is anything taking place in in conjunction to anything else that's one thing that i forgot to mention i wanted to praise about snake eyes actually was that by the end of the movie you know where everything and everyone mm. was in relation to each other there wasn't a there was never a, a moment of how far away is that from that you, you knew yeah and, and like that is the thing that i think Depama does perfectly that like that that's the hitch thing that only he has managed to perfectly capture is just you know everything counts and just you get everything that's going on the camera shows you everything you need to know mm-hmm uh, not so sense of space. Not so with Doris Wishman, and especially in this one where it's just, I don't know what was going on. It's crazy <laughs> all over the place. One of those problems is like the porn sequences are endless and they just go on and on and on and on. And they're not even shot by her, apparently. She just farmed it out for to somebody else. <laughs> so it's weird. 
That's funny. But yeah, it's it's a ghost who becomes obsessed with this lady and he becomes really jealous of her. Like he shows up as a ghost and he like molests her and like the, she has sex with a ghost. And, you know, it's sort of a masturbation scene because it's just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Invisible pr- presence. how would. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, the ghost starts killing people uh, because, you know, there are other people who are interested in her. Weird. <laughs> Next, we've got Death in the Family, which is the next Michael J. Murphy one. That great big, huge indicator box. Okay. Uh, so, again, it's a pretty short one. This one, it's much more of a film. I, I kind of get a feel for his style this time, I think. <laughs> it's It's taken us a while to get to that point, hasn't it? Well, up until, like, the previous one, they've all just been fragments. True, so true. This is, uh, like, the second one that's a complete film that's more than 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a family reunion in Greece. All of his have been in Greece to this point. I don't really know why. I, I guess it was just an, an available place that he knew was really picturesque. Mm-hmm. So it's a family reunion, and you, you got some of those step romances, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, <laughs> there's, there's some of them. A murder happens or, or someone shows up dead and then the, there's just like a series of further murders to cover up the first murder until there's just no one left. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of silly. Like it, it it plays it totally flat and serious. But by the end, you see that it's absurd. I don't really know where it was going, but it was interesting. Like I'm kind of getting a feel for it. Like Tales from the Crypt, but told just totally blank faced like you you have no idea that you're being made fun of until it's over (laughs) all right next we've got firebirds which is another nicholas cage picture this is nicholas cage's top gun but with helicopters and the war on drugs you showed me clips on this one too i am the greatest (laughs) i am the greatest (laughs) <laughs> that that is absolutely the great freakout moment, and just the totally iconic one is him yelling, "I am the greatest!" at a series of different cameras, like yelling, like looking into the camera and shouting it <laughs> at Tommy Lee Jones, who he knows is on the other end of all said cameras, <laughs> while he's blowing stuff up in a flight simulator. By the way, <laughs> oh, it wasn't even. Hmm. <laughs> A lot of flight simulator action in this. Because <laughs> it's it's like Top Gun. It's a school movie. Oh, okay. Because Tommy Lee Jones, he's sent in to retrain these helicopter pilots for their new conditions and the drug war in South America. <laughs> he's sent in to... I'm just imagining, like, he's sent in to train these uh, disadvantaged helicopter pilots and the uh, gangsta paradise starts playing. Well, it's they're they're like an Apache helicopter crew, and they're all kind of these Top Gun sort of dudes already, especially Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's playing a Tom Cruise parody performance. It feels like he is doing Nick or doing Tom Cruise in Top Gun, but like a little bit over the top and intentionally like doing it a joke on it. That's the impression I got from the clip you showed me of him uh, jogging behind the sergeant. (laughs) That one is so good. Him (laughs) running up the stairs and him just continuing to run while Tommy Lee Jones is just, I don't have time for that. I'm not interested. I don't have this sort of energy. Go away. (laughs) I'm just out for a run. (laughs) 
I'm just over a run. <laughs> yeah. But the the I am the greatest thing is the peak of this movie. I would say uh, it's <laughs> it's weird. I, the the cage stuff is fun and the Tommy Lee Jones stuff is fun, but just it's sort of an amorphous blob around it. You know, it's a whole lot of them in flight simulators and not doing anything real. Because the thing is, like, they ran into one drug kingpin who has his own helicopter and they're like "Uh oh <laughs> there's another helicopter how are we supposed to do our helicopter assault because <laughs> their 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 thing is they're a group who train local helicopter pilots to battle drug i don't know it's it's needlessly complex it's very intentionally like it's got it opens with a quote scroll from george bush senior mm about the Ooh. war on drugs and it just feels like it's supposed to be really patriotic. And then you just have one really off the wall cage performance in the middle of this. <laughs> uh, interesting. Next, we've got red surf, another interesting, obscure performance by a superstar. This one, it's kind of point break. You, you've seen point break, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Patrick Swayze surf crimes movie. Oh, it's, no, it's, I haven't. It's it's the famous shooting up in the air and going, oh. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> this is, it's it's kind of the same plot. You got a surf crime gang. It's led up by Gene Simmons and George Clooney. <laughs> circa 1989. <laughs> As just like scuzzy punk surfers who are also a crime gang. <laughs> it's kind of fun it's crazy they're just really off the hook uh you you get to see george clooney smoke crack you get to see george clooney execute someone with a shotgun and ultimately i don't even know who this person was <laughs> <laughs> they just pulled someone random off the street and shot him in the head i think oh oh gene simmons gene simmons of kiss simmons. <laughs> <laughs> gene simmons of kiss as, still a uh, weird combo very weird uh, strange stuff, just, you know, a cheap direct-to-video surf crime movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Well, I, I guess not surf crimes. They commit crimes on sea-doos, technically. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so another one with a sea-doo gang. Well, it was ski-doos in oh. Gina. Ski-doos. That, that was, you know, it's Canadian uh, north, whereas this one's, right, I think, right. Florida, probably. Maybe it's California. I can't remember. Next, we've got one you've probably heard of and maybe have seen, Slumdog Millionaire. I have heard of it. I have not seen it. And somehow, despite the fact that it was huge when it came out, somehow, I don't even know what it's about. So this was Best Picture winner that year. Best Picture 2008. I do recall that. Uh, Danny Boyle, director of Trainspotting. This was his big Oscar picture. Ooh, Okay. And it's interesting. It's a very super populist film. It is, it's based on a book called Q&A, but from my understanding, not all that closely based on it. And it's about who wants to be a millionaire. Okay. So it's this kid who's from one of like the lowest, like the, the harshest slums in India. And India has a very rigid caste system. So upward yeah. mobility is really tough there. And who wants to be a millionaire is bigger there than anywhere else in the world. Like it's still huge there. Okay. Okay. Like, today. <laughs> I, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, 
he he plays this kid who has gone through this crazy set of experiences and he finds himself on who wants to be a millionaire and it's one of these fate films because that's sort of a a, a popular bollywood trait i would say and it's him uh it, he at the beginning he is being interrogated and tortured by police to find out how he knew the answers because they think he's cheating because how would a slum dog know the answers to all these questions of course yeah and it's him flashing back to his horrifying childhood in the slums and all of these different experiences he had that relate to each of the answers and why he would know them oh that's uh that's what this is about that's it's yeah it's it's hyperkinetic it's really fucking crazy you have some big musical sequences it kind of saves the one big dance and song sequence to the end credit but you know it builds up to it sure uh introduced dev patel which is pretty big this oh. was his breakthrough film i've se- i've seen a few things of him he was he was the guy in lion right yeah and the green knight oh yeah right the green the knight okay covered. he's we like him or i yeah, like he's, him he's least. great yeah so this is him when he was pretty young and pretty much unknown, but it's sort of the big breakthrough film for him. Okay, cool. It's pretty good. Uh, the middle section sort of lags a bit. It's one of these movies that winning Best Picture was the worst thing for it because it really had a backlash once it won Best Picture, but mm. was pretty beloved up until that point. It's <laughs> like, I saw this one in theater and I was like, this fucking rules. By the time it won Best Picture... I watched again around then. I was like, eh, pretty good. And returning to it now, I'm warmer to it. I was like, yeah, it's a pretty good time. I, I do see the flaws, though. Uh, it, it sort of gets lost a little bit in the middle. And some of it does feel like a little, what do you call it, poverty porny, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, slum stuff where it's just like gruelingly horrible stuff that they have to go through uh, as children. Mm-hmm. Extremely good child actors in this, too, when like oh. each of the it flashes back to various different sequences and it has actual uh, children from the slums that they got a hold of and cast in the film and gave them like college endowments and stuff. Oh, cool. cool. Kind of neat. Next, we've got The Brood. It's a David Cronenberg picture. Not sure if I've heard of this or not. Uh, it's it's just got one of those. It's such a horror movie title. Yeah. Uh, this one is about killer kids. Creepy, creepy killer kids. Oh. Uh, it's, I, I feel like this one, to a certain degree, emanates out of the Anthill kids. Ooh, okay. okay. Because it's 1979. It comes out near the end of 79. And February 79 is the first time Rock Terrio was arrested. Uh, yeah, so the Antel Kids, for those who don't know, are... <laughs> Terrifying <laughs> Canadian cult. And local to, uh, you know, this is the area in which Cronenberg lives. So I do think it's it's influenced by that. There's this thing called psychoplasmics in the movie, which okay. is, it's the sort of cult, it's a therapy program. And this guy, his wife is in this therapy program, and... It's she's totally isolated. She has, I think, a weekly visit from their daughter, and otherwise she's not allowed to see anyone at all for months. And uh, it's part of this psychoplasmics training, which 
is sort of an experimental therapy <laughs> that uh, we will learn later also involves some experimental uh, surgery and oh, body no, modification. No, no. Body horror. Because it's, you know, it's Cronenberg, so you know, yeah. you're going to have some body horror in there. Yeah, oh, yeah. But not of exactly the Rockterio sort. I don't even know if how much of that had come to light yet. I would have to assume not very much since this was only the first arrest. Oh, yeah, right. So yeah, a lot of so, that wouldn't have even happened yet. Yeah, so it, it kind of makes it interesting because it does sort of reflect that and it reflects what it would come to be in a weird sort of way. And like not it, it goes in a different way because it's ultimately the thing is the brood are this uh, are these little children with creepy hellish faces like they, they they've got like monster faces kind of uh you know they're like little children but they go out and they're like a personification of rage and they just go out and murder people okay okay periodically uh it's it's twisted it's really messed up it's it's one of the more uh intense cronenbergs i think it has maybe the grossest thing in any of his 70s movies there's one particular sequence that is burned in my mind. So the grossest of a Cronenberg sequence. Um, Think I'm so. a little bit afraid. <laughs> it's gross. Because I, uh, ne- I know he can do it. He can do it. Next one, we've got The Assassin of the Tsar, which is a 90s Russian Malcolm McDowell movie. Okay. Hard to follow. <laughs> it's uh very uh it's it's flashbacky but it's the the it, malcolm mcdowell plays this guy who believes like he's in an insane asylum because he believes he assassinated czar nicholas the second okay which happened a really long time ago <laughs> you know that that happened at the beginning of the 20th century yeah oh oh so hold on he's in an asylum like today times i I think it's set in like the present day or semi-recently like you know it's 1991 and i think it's set in 1991 probably i believe wow okay so he probably didn't do it he definitely didn't do it Uh, although maybe he did it because he might be time traveler he might be some sort of metaphorical thing uh could be immortal (laughs) he could be immortal and he because he also believes he assassinated the previous czar too and that was back in like the 1800s (laughs) that seems less likely yeah uh and he we we flash back to those we it's basically getting an idea of that period of russian history and sort of how uh the the romanovs fell it's sort of a, a history of the the fall of the Romanovs and kind of a a theoretical history because it's you know that's where Anastasia comes from. No one's entirely a hundred percent on exactly how it went down, so it's a theoretical version of that. But then the weird thing is it's got this whole present day thing where the doctor who's interrogating him or is treating him is starting to feed into his psychoses and he believes like he plays he's played by the same guy who plays the czar in the flashbacks oh and it starts to affect him like he starts to become the czar and you know the the layers between reality really blur like i said it becomes very hard to follow (laughs) Uh (laughs) okay is rasputin in this 
No, never really okay. referenced. I guess ultimately maybe he's kind of supposed to be a Rasputin figure, but yeah, it's weird that it just kind of doesn't come up. Well, I mean, the Tsar did have a lot of other shit going on, so yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. yeah, and he really only shows up to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Although we just see a lot of stuff of just the Tsar just hanging out with his family. I don't know. It's hard to follow. <laughs> Next, we've got Wheels of Fire, which is a Mad Max, uh, specifically Road Warrior knockoff. Okay. Uh, it's... <laughs> oh, Highway Warriors. <laughs> yeah, Highway Warrior is the alternate title, or Desert Warrior, I think, also is another title it is. Yeah, I mean, it... it... <laughs> It's Road Warrior. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. It's just Road Warrior. It's it's cheaper. It's made in the Philippines. I guess the big difference is he has a car-mounted flamethrower, and he's just lighting people on fire all the time. There's so many sequences where people are on fire running around. So this is where you get the wheels of fire from. Sure. So, I mean, in that sense, it was it was kind of fun. <laughs> Not very well made. It's obviously just a clone. Next, we've got Dog Tags, uh, a.k.a. Platoon to Hell. Platoon to Hell. This is an Italian knockoff of Platoon, knock, another mockbuster. So uh, kind of like uh, Siege of Firebase Gloria, it's an exploitation nom movie. Okay. And uh, this one, it's just really hard-edged. It's, uh, it's sort of a treasure of the Sierra Madre story. Do, have you ever seen Sierra Madre? I don't think so, no. Humphrey Bogart classic where they uh, find a bunch of gold in the hills and they're trying to get it out, but nobody trusts anyone else. And just they're slowly whittled down one by one until there's only one person left. This one. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't. So th this one, it's uh, it, this platoon who you, know, you, you have your one hero guy or I guess your two hero guys. And they're sent in to rescue some dudes from a POW camp at the beginning. And they go through this whole rescue and then they get another mission and they're like, they're not going to get picked up with the guys or all of these wounded. They have to just take them to the next mission, which turns out to just be rescuing a bunch of gold from a helicopter that was being taken out of, uh, you know, taken out of <laughs> Vietnam by the Americans because it's being bezeled. It's interesting to see a Vietnam movie from a non-American source. It's very bleak, very mean. I bet. <laughs> It was kind of fun. Uh, right. Just twisted. Uh, everybody gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we've got Lady Whirlwind. First of two movies in an Angela Mao set from Arrow. Oh. So Angela Mao, uh, she... I, I, I talked about her previously. She did Dance of Death, which was kind of fun. This one's, you know, more fully restored release. Uh, this one... Uh, was, for some reason, in America, released as Deep Thrust. <laughs> and Lady Kung Fu. Uh, and because the, uh, the, not her, but the guy, there, there's a male lead as well who she wants to kill. Because her whole thing is her sister was abandoned. Like she, I, I think he was married to her sister and he abandoned her because he had to run away from some kind of thing. I can't remember exactly what. And she, the, the sister killed herself. So, okay. you know, Mao is out for revenge, obviously. Yeah. And she's an unstoppable killing force and nobody can resist her. And everybody's just like, we don't want to deal with you. We're just dealing with this other stuff. 
would you say she is a whirlwind lady? She kind of is. She has the whirlwind kick, which is oh. just totally not defeatable. And oh, yeah, no, you can't. You can't. Yeah. So the the guy she's after, he's dealing with this other thing where he's trying to take down the bad guys. Like he's actually sort of a good guy, but he's on the run and he's run afoul of the villains running the town and they keep starting fights with her. And then she just destroys all of them. <laughs> and then she's like, I I'm, don't even like, I'm not interested in fighting you. I just want this one guy. It's like, Oh, we don't, we don't know that guy. I, isn't that guy dead? I thought we already killed that guy. <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, hmm, well that's kind of disappointing. And then it turns out he's alive. So she wants to kill him, but he's trying to do this whole good deed first. He's like, fine. Now, there, there's all these sequences where it's like, please, please, Angela Mount, don't kill me. I have so much good work to do. <laughs> this happens like four or five times in the movie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> she keeps coming back. Ultimately, she has to team up with him to defeat the bad guys because uh, he's like, all right, I can't with good conscience kill you before you do the good deed, but I'm going to kill you after. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's not great, but his thing is the deep thrust thing because he gets badly defeated. Of course. And uh, he meets up with this monk and he teaches him the iron fist technique or the iron hand, which, you know, it's it's the typical thing that I've seen done in multiple movies where someone has to just punch their hands into uh, ashes and rocks and enough until they become, you know, metal. Right. We've covered at least one movie where this happens. I believe Five Fingers of Death does exactly the same thing. And so, yeah, that's him. When. He in, instead of punching people, he just like thrusts his fingers into their guts. Oh, okay, his fingers. That's <laughs> so a deep thrust. Yeah. Oh, see, I thought you were going somewhere else with this. Well, that's yeah. The it, it, <laughs> the, the American uh, uh, marketing focused on like tried to make it really double entendre because you know circa the porn chic era, I guess. Weird. <laughs> Next up, we've got Cliffhanger. I've seen this, but I don't remember if it's good. I kind of dig it. It's It doesn't have the best reputation, but it's got... I mean, it's the last great Stallone until he started doing all his rehash stuff. It's incredibly oh, beautifully shot. Yeah, Stallone. And uh, John as Lithgow. John Lithgow and Michael Ironside. Oh. Michael Ironside is his buddy who's the other rescue climber. The both the like both of them are search and rescue climbing guys in the Rockies. Right. Oh, the Rockies. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And in the opening sequence, uh they screw up and this lady falls to her death and so Stallone leaves for a while and he's come back on vacation and he gets involved in a scheme where John Lithgow has hijacked a money plane, basically, (laughs) and crashed it into the Rockies. And they're trying to find these cases of hundred thousand dollar bills or uh, cases of thousand dollar bills adding up to a hundred thousand bucks or something. Maybe it's a hundred million. I don't know. It's like. He's a sort of supervillain who has all these international connections, and it's this really elaborate plot where, you know, they're, uh, they, they've got multiple planes, and they hijack, and they're jumping out of the plane with this stuff, and they're wiring, like, they're, they try to transition, like, they, they climb from plane to plane by wire and stuff, really crazy stunts. I think at the time, 
one of them was the most expensive stunt ever performed. I do recall hearing something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the the guy walking the wire from plane to plane, I think, whatever, or doing the transition. Anyway, uh, Lithgow just at ten all the movie, <laughs> you know, just really, really over the top. His most super villainous type performance. Him just really chewing up the scenery, having a lot of fun with it, and pretty amazing stunts. It's really beautifully shot because it's just huge vistas of the Rockies. Like it feels like it should have been an IMAX movie. Okay. Yeah. I remember so, it being really pretty. So yeah, you yeah, know, pretty good. <laughs> uh, a few really fun, big performances. All of the villains are just huge and loud and angry. There's this one guy, I can't remember the, the name of the actor, but he is just the angriest man in the world. And is just, he is constantly cursing and he's so much fun <laughs> to listen to. Uh, next, we've got Sliver, another big, I think the same year, 93, another big blockbuster. But this one was very hated at the time compared to Cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this uh, stars Sharon Stone and Billy Baldwin. It kind of almost feels like it could be a sequel to, or like a spinoff from Flatliners. Oh, interesting. Billy Baldwin, Billy Baldwin's character from Flatliners, as you recall. Had a thing about taping people. Uh, oh, okay. That's who that was. So semi-spoilers. Again, this is a reveal that is fairly early and like takes up a significant portion of the movie. But uh, Sharon Stone moves into this new apartment building where creepy things have been happening. Ladies have been dying. Mm -hmm. And she's being uh, stalked by an author who I think is based on Norman Mailer. Like, I'm 99% sure he's based on Norman Mailer, the guy who wrote Tough Guys Can't Dance. <laughs> okay. Or Tough Guys Don't Dance. Tough, Tough Guys yeah. Don't Dance. So I, I think he's like 80% based on him. Uh, and yeah, she's he's just really forceful and trying to get into her life. And everybody seems to immediately know everything about her business. And everybody, it's, again, it's a rear window one, but it's a, an inversion where it's everybody is watching everyone. And like Billy Baldwin... I mean, you don't know it immediately, but it's kind of pretty clear. He sends her a telescope so that she can start peeping when she moves in. <laughs> Just everyone's watching everyone else and everybody's very gossipy. And it turns out that Billy Baldwin has dozens of cameras in every room and is constantly watching and taping everyone all the time. Okay. He has this giant surveillance palace in a hidden wall uh, under like in his, you know, apartment that and people don't even know that he owns the place. He just pretends to be another one of the people who lives there. But secretly, he owns the whole building. Yeah, I was going to say, how did he get the landlord to agree to that? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he secretly owns the place. Uh, it's weird. It's it's very absurd. I, it was so hated at the time. I it. it like got nominated for every golden raspberry award. <laughs> uh, I think it kind of ended Billy Baldwin's superstar career. Like this is where they, he started to trail off. Oh, I see. And kind of, it's like, uh, maybe we'll just stick with Alec. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try Steven out for a little bit, but I don't know about that either. Uh, last up is golden era which is a documentary about GoldenEye, the video game. I played that once or twice. I played, oh, no, that, I... <laughs> I played that for like a solid three straight years. 
yeah. <laughs> almost nothing yeah. else. Yep. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's a movie about just how big that game was, and uh, it's it, it feels like an overstuffed YouTube video. To be honest, it feels like maybe it's better destiny would have been as a youtube video it's oh, just really? like it, it, it it's an hour and 40 minutes and like you're done talking about the development and release and uh fame and every and success of goldeneye by 60 minutes and then you got 40 minutes where you're dithering around with and then you know there's fan communities and speed running's a thing would you oh. like to learn about what speed running is it's like Not okay really. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's like okay, I get it. Uh, it, it. A lot of stuff about fan communities in terms of mods and remakes, and you know the ultimate leak that finally came out of the HD upgrade, even though they never officially released it. So you know, interesting, and you know, it's it's I, I love that game, and I played a lot of it, so it was nostalgic for me to look back on all of this stuff. But I didn't learn that much, other than that all of the. Uh, all of like the scientists and stuff are based on the developers and Dr. Doke is actually just one of the guys on the development team, which I, that was oh, cool. yeah. Dr. Doke. You have to escort him in that one mission. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, as soon as I saw the name, it's like Dr. Doke. Holy shit. He's a real guy. I, <laughs> I, so I played the game before I saw the movie and I was like, where's Dr. Doke when I finally saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he was a game developer i did see the movie first because i saw the movie in theaters and the the game didn't come out until two years later like it, it totally blew it it was supposed to come out in conjunction with the movie and it missed that oh, yeah, and then no, it was supposed did. to come out <laughs> in conjunction with the home video release it missed that <laughs> <laughs> the movie was old news by the time the game came out <laughs> Yeah, and that's sort of the thing is it's it, part of it's about just rare, uh, the rise and fall of rare, rareware and so forth. So, you know, it's kind of interesting in that regard, but it definitely felt like maybe would have been better a good 40 minutes shorter. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say if it was a YouTube video, though, it would be an eight hour essay. Maybe that would have been better, too. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I feel I like know. it's. Its ideal version would have been just an hour-long video by the gaming historian or something. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's, yeah. it's it's well made. It's got like it's it's one of those that we're making something that probably would be more suited to a YouTube essay video. So we're gonna just use a lot of graphics and we're gonna talk to absolutely everybody important, get every single game developer interviewed. And it's you know it's I nicely made. Garbage cans. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know it's it's. It's interesting enough, but for super fans only, maybe I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm no super fan of Goldeneye. That's fair. So, of those fourteen, what do you figure for our second feature next week? Well, I've been wanting to watch Slumdog Millionaire for ages, you know, since it won, and everyone was like, "Oh wow, yeah, this is a really good movie." And cool. Then I never right. saw it. So, right, yeah, sure, let's, yeah. Yeah, let's do that one. Yeah, we haven't covered... I don't know if we've ever covered a Best Picture winner. <laughs> Maybe. I don't believe so. Not that I can think of. It's possible. So, we have, let's see, six additions to the stacks. Okay. Uh, first up, we've got Rapina. This is a Spanish film, a Mexican film. These uh, two manual laborers, very poor guys, who happen upon a plane crash. 
and they, you know, they're, they're stealing all the stuff from the bodies. Uh, but, you know, slowly starting to worry about getting caught for stealing all the stuff. Right. And, you know, uh, two, two people knowing a secret is one too many, right? Of course. Yeah. It, it has to be a Joker plot. Yeah. I guess. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like a simple plan. You ever see that one, the Sam Raimi movie from the nineties? No, I haven't seen that one. Pretty good. It's, it's like his non, it's like very slow moving in terms of the camera stuff. It doesn't do a lot of his showy stuff. And it's just a potboiler of these guys who find a bunch of money and it's not, it doesn't belong to them. So it's dangerous for anyone else to know. And just their lives slowly unraveling because of it. Okay. The same kind of thing. Next up, we've got Satan Was a Lady. This is the other Doris Wishman porno. Oh, boy. She's tackling uh, the devil, huh? I think so. <laughs> it's It seems to have the same plot as The Prince and the Nature Girl, where you have two sisters, and both of them want the same guy, and one of them is a fiancé to the guy. But this one, it takes a dark twist. Instead of her just marrying the guy's boss, uh, she... I think her and the guy are in on it together and they're maybe trying to sacrifice her to the devil or something. <laughs> they're they're trying to drive her crazy, apparently. So I don't know. I don't know. All right. <laughs> sure. Uh, next up is Invitation to Hell, which is probably the most famous movie in the Michael J. Murphy set. It's definitely his most well-known so it is a movie about a girl who goes to a costume party off in the middle of nowhere, and it's really creepy. And it turns out to maybe actually be uh, uh, like she she gets uh, kidnapped and she's going to be sacrificed to the devil after the party. And Tom Cruise was there and he was really confused. Yeah, something like that. Uh, <laughs> it, it, or or maybe like uh, House of the Devil, sort of somewhere in uh, between the two of those. But yeah, you know, uh, shot on 16 millimeter, made for no budget in the 70s. Or 80s? I guess it's 80s by now in the set. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, 82 it said. <laughs> 82. Yeah. Next, I'm going to get you, sucker. <laughs> it's a blaxploitation uh, pastiche satire film by the Wayans Brothers early okay. in their run, like just pre in living color. Like, I think it's like the year before. Oh, so really early. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it's, it's all the Wayans guys and it's, it's, it's kind of the same plot as, uh, that other, uh, retro black exploitation I watched made by Larry Cohen, where this guy moves back into his old neighborhood and you know, the crime's really gone up. So he gets the old gang back together to fight crime. Okay. I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. I hear it's all right. <laughs> Next is Raiders of the Sun. Another Mad Max knockoff. They're right. Philippines-based Mad Max knockoff. I think this one's maybe more Beyond Thunderdome. That's one that I haven't seen. That's fair. It's the one with Tina Turner. It's kind of fun. It's okay. It's not as good as the other two, or the other three, rather. Oh, yeah. Fury Road. Fury Road. And last... Which is real good. Uh, so good. Last up is Hapkido, which is the other Angela Mao picture from that uh, Arrow set. And this one, uh, it's set in Korea during the uh, occupation of Korea. Oh. And uh, so it's it's Japanese occupation of Korea. So it's like oh. 
martial arts schools being kind of persecuted. It kind of sounds like it's sort of the same plot as a Chinese boxer, but with Angela Mao in it, kind of, and in Korea during Japanese occupation. Sure. <laughs> I, yeah, like I don't it. know. I'm into it. Yeah, I hear it's supposed to be really good. This one's pretty well liked. Cool. So, what do you figure for our main feature next week? Well, that is a good question, as it always is, because it's one that needs to be answered, or the show won't end. Uh, <laughs> well, I was thinking, so it's the If Chris Files that's uh, Michael Caine as like a James Bond, right? It's sort of like, I would not say really James Bond exactly, but it's, uh, he's, I think, I believe it's Harry Palmer, Harry Palmer. Uh, and he, he's sort of like the anti James Bond where he is a little shady. It's not totally clear how on the level he is, but he is working in the secret service and he's trying to uncover a traitor who's within the biz. And he just uses a lot of sort of more sneaky tricks like he he's a bit more of a cipher he's more realistically someone who can blend in anywhere he's not the high style globe-trotting british intelligence type okay um because that's been on the stack for quite a while mm-hmm. uh and uh, I, I remember burying something else to get to it but i can't remember what now uh so let's Sartana. finally uh really was it Okay, yes, Sartana. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah, let's let's get to it. Let's see what All this right. is about. So the Ipcress file from 1965. Uh, so yeah, Ipcress file and Slumdog Millionaire was it? That's what it was. All right, cool. All right, so yeah, next week we'll be covering the Ipcress file from 1965 and Slumdog Millionaire Best Picture winner of 2008. Should be interesting. Your first time seeing uh, Slumdog. Yep. Have you ever seen any Bollywood films? I never have. I've only ever seen clips of them on YouTube of just like the wild shit that happens in the fight scenes. Like uh, four guys like shooting themselves out of a cannon and they're just like. Right. It's yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they can get pretty wild. I've not seen a lot. I like I've seen a few of the like the early classic stuff and mostly horror stuff but i do have a big box of bollywood horror coming soon which i'm gonna be excited to dig into so slumdog is a bollywood film then it it's not actually a bollywood film but it's heavily based in it like it's it's borrowing a lot from its style and it does have a big bollywood dance sequence at the end right okay cool i'm looking forward to it yeah it's pretty interesting uh so any last thoughts before we close for this week uh, yeah, the answer is me. I'm the one who wants to be a millionaire. It's it's me. That's that's <laughs> I, the answer to the question. I, I would say uh, the answer is everyone. Final answer. <laughs> everyone would like to be a millionaire, except I guess except people who are like billionaires and trillionaires. They probably wouldn't like to be millionaires. No, they would see. Which is why they want to keep getting more and more and acquiring more, so other people can't be. Yeah, because because you know, <laughs> whoever the dies of the a most level wins. playing field. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, thanks you so much for listening and, uh, we'll see you next week on who wants to be a millionaire.